This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of Rastanak the Devil by Philip Jose Farmer. It's read by Greg Marguerite for LibriVox. It runs one hour, 58 minutes, and we will be discussing it afterward. Rastanak the Devil by Philip Jose Farmer. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Greg Marguerite. Enslaved by a triangular powered despotism, one lone man sets his sights to the six bright stars and eventual freedom of his world. After the apocalyptic war, the decimated remnants of the French huddled in the Loire Valley were gradually squeezed between two new and growing nations. The Colossus to the north was unfriendly, and obviously intended to absorb the little New France. The Colossus to the south was friendly, and offered to take the weak state into its confederation of republics as a full partner. A number of proud and independent French citizens feared that even the latter alternative meant the eventual transmutation of their tongue, religion, and nationality into those of their southern neighbor. Seeking a way of salvation, they built six huge spaceships that would hold thirty thousand people most of whom would be in deep freeze until they reached their destination. The six vessels then set off into interstellar space to find a planet that would be as much like Earth as possible. That was in the twenty-second century, over three hundred and fifty years passed before Earth heard of them again. However, we are not here concerned with the home world, but with the story of a man of that pioneer group who wanted to leave the new Gaul and sail again to the stars. Rastanak had no skin. He was nevertheless happier than he had been since the age of five. He was as happy as a man can be who lives deep under the ground. Underground organizations are often under the ground. They are formed into cells. Cell number one usually contains the leader of the underground. Jean-Jacques Rastanac, chief of the legal underground of the kingdom of Le Beaupre, was literally in a cell beneath the surface of the earth. He was in jail. For a dungeon, it wasn't bad. He had two cells. One was deep inside the building proper, built into the wall so that he could sit in it when he wanted to retreat from the sun or the rain. The adjoining cell was at the bottom of a well whose top was covered with a grill of thin steel bars. Here he spent most of his waking hours, forced to look upwards if he wanted to see the sky or the stars. Rastanak suffered from a chronic stiff neck. Several times during the day he had visitors. They were allowed to bend over the grill and talk down to him. A guard, one of the king's mucketeers, mucketeer is the best translation of the twenty-sixth century French noun voutoiqui, stood by as a censor. When night came, Rastanak ate the meal let down by ropes on a platform. Then another of the king's mucketeers stood by with drawn epee until he had finished eating. When the tray was pulled back up and the grill lowered and locked, the mucketeer marched off with the turnkey. 
Rastignac sharpened his wit by calling a few choice insults to the night guard. Then he went into the cell inside the wall and lay down to take a nap. Later he would rise and pace back and forth like a caged tiger. Now and then he would stop and look upwards, scan the stars, hunch his shoulders, and resume his savage circuit of the cell. But the time would come when he would stand statue still. Nothing moved except his head, which turned slowly. Some day I'll ride to the stars with you. He said it as he watched the six flying stars speed across the night sky. Six glowing stars that moved in a direction opposite to the march of the other stars. Bright as Sirius seen from Earth, strung out one behind the other like jewels on a velvet string, they hurtled across the heavens. They were the six ships on which the original Loire Valley Frenchmen had sailed out into space, seeking a new home on a new planet. They had been put into an orbit around New Gaul and left there while their thirty thousand passengers had descended to the surface in chemical-fueled rockets. Mankind, once on the fair and fresh earth of the new planet, had never again ascended to revisit the great ships. For three hundred years these six ships had circled the planet known as New Gaul, nightly beacons and glowing reminders to man that he was a stranger on this planet. When the Earthmen landed on the new planet they had called the new land Le Bopé, or, as it was now pronounced, Le Bopfe, the beautiful country. They had been delighted, entranced with the fresh new land. After the burned, war-racked earth they just left, it was like coming to heaven. They found two intelligent species living on the planet, and they found that the species lived in peace and that they had no conception of war or poverty, and they were quite willing to receive the Terrans into their society, provided, that is, they became integrated, or, as they phrased it, natural. The Frenchmen from Earth had been given their choice. They were told, you can live with the people of the beautiful land on our terms, war with us, or leave to seek another planet. The Terrans conferred. Half of them decided to stay. The other half decided to remain only long enough to mine uranium and other chemicals. Then they would voyage onwards. But. Nobody from that group of Earthmen ever again stepped into the ferry rockets and soared up to the six ion-beam ships circling about Le Beaupay. All succumbed to the philosophy of the natural. Within a few generations a stranger landing upon the planet would not have known without previous information that the Terrans were not aboriginal. He would have found three species. Two were warm-blooded egg-layers who had evolved directly from reptiles without becoming mammals the Sassarors and the Amphibs. Somewhere in their dim past, like all happy nations, they had no history. They had set up their society and been very satisfied with it since. It was a peaceful, quiet world, largely peasant, where nobody had to scratch for a living and where a superb manipulation of biological forces ensured very long lives, no disease, and a social lubrication that left little to desire. From their viewpoint, anyway. The government was nominally a monarchy. The kings were elected by the people and were a different species than the group each ruled. Sassaror ruled human, and vice versa, each assisted by foster brothers and sisters of the race over which they reigned. These were the so-called dukes and duchesses. The Chamber of Deputies, 
Le Swayaptetapfuti, was half-human and half-sassaror. The so-called kings took turns presiding over the chamber for forty-day intervals. The deputies were elected for ten-year terms by constituents who could not be deceived about their representatives' purposes because of the sensitive skins which allowed them to determine their true feeling and worth. In one custom alone did the ex-Terrans differ from their neighbors. This was in carrying arms. In the beginning, the Sasseror had allowed the men to wear their short rapiers so they would feel safe even though in the midst of aliens. As time went on, only the king's mucketeers and members of the official underground were allowed to carry epées. These men, it might be noticed, were the congenital adventurers, men who needed to swashbuckle and revel in the name of individualist. Like the egg-stealers, they needed an institution in which they could work off antisocial steam. From the beginning, the amphibians had been a little separate from the Sasseror, and when the Earthmen came, they did not get any more neighborly. Nevertheless, they preserved excellent relations, and they, too, participated in the changeling custom. This changeling custom was another social device set up millennia ago to keep a mutual understanding between all species on the planet. It was a peculiar institution one that the Earthmen had found hard to understand and ever more difficult to adopt. Nevertheless, once the skins had been accepted, they had changed their attitude, forgot their speculations about its origin, and threw themselves into the custom of stealing babies, or eggs, from another race and raising the children as their own. You rob my cradle, I'll rob yours. Such was their motto, and it worked. A guild of egg-stealers was formed. The human branch of it guaranteed for a price to bring you a Sasseror child to replace the one that had been stolen from you. Or, if you lived on the seashore, and an amphibian had crept into your nursery and taken your baby, always under two years old, according to the rules, then the guildsman would bring you an amphib, or perhaps the child of a human changeling reared by the sea-folk. You raised it and loved it as your own. How could you help loving it? Your skin told you that it was small and helpless and needed you and was, despite appearances, as human as any of your babies. Nor did you need to worry about the one that had been abducted. It was getting just as good care as you were giving this one. It had never occurred to anyone to quit the stealing and voluntary exchange of babies. Perhaps that was because it would strain even the loving nature of the skin-wearers to give away their own flesh and blood. But once the transfer had taken place, they could adapt. Or perhaps the custom was kept because tradition is stronger than law in a peasant monarchy society, and also because egg and baby stealing gave the more naturally aggressive and daring citizens a chance to work off their antisocial behavior. Nobody but a historian would have known, and there were no historians in the beautiful land. Long ago, the Sasseror had discovered if they lived meatless, they had a much easier time curbing their belligerency, obeying the skins, and remaining cooperative. So they induced the Earthmen to put a taboo on eating flesh. The only drawback to the meatless diet was that both Sasseror and man became as stunted in stature as they did in aggressiveness, the former so much that they barely came to the chins of the humans. These, in turn, would have seemed short to a Western European. 
But Rastignac, an Earthman, and his good friend, Mapfarity, the Sassaror giant, became taboo-breakers when they were children and played together on the beach where they first ate seafood out of curiosity, then continued because they liked it. And due to their protein diet, the Terran had grown well over six feet in height, and the Sassaror seemed to have touched off a rocket of expansion in his body with his protein-eating. Those Sassarors who shared his guilt became meat-eaters, became ostracized, and eventually moved off to live by themselves. They were called Sassaror Giants, and were pointed to as an object lesson to the young of the normal Sassarors and humans on the land. If a stranger had landed shortly before Rastignac was born, however, he would have noticed that all was not as serene as it was supposed to be among the different species. The cause for the flaw in the former Eden might have puzzled him if he had not known the previous history of Le Boffet. And the fact that the situation had not changed for the worst until the introduction of human changelings among the amphibians. Then it had been that blood-drinking began among them, that amphibians began seducing humans to come live with them by their tales of easy immortality, and that they started the system of leaving savage little carnivores in the human nurseries. When the land-dwellers protested, the amphibs replied that these things were carried out by unnaturals or outlaws, and that the sea-king could not be held responsible. Permission was given to chalice those caught in such behavior. Nevertheless, the suspicion remained that the amphib monarch had, in accordance with age-old procedure, given his unofficial official blessing, and that he was preparing even more disgusting and outrageous and unnatural moves. Through his control of the populace by the master's skin, he would be able to do as he pleased with their minds. It was the skins that had made the universal peace possible on the planet of New Gaul, and it would be the custom of the skins that would make possible the change from peace to conflict among the populace. Through the artificial skins that were put on all babies at birth, and which grew with them, attached to their body, feeding from their bloodstreams their nervous systems, the skins controlled by a huge master skin that floated in a chemical vat in the palace of the rulers, fed, indoctrinated, and attended day and night by a crew of the most brilliant scientists of the planet, gave the kings complete control over the minds and emotions of the inhabitants of the planet. Originally the rulers of New Gaul had desired only that the populace live in peace and enjoy the good things of their planet equally. But the change that had been coming gradually, the growth of conflict between the kings of the different species for control of the whole populace, was beginning to be generally felt. Uneasiness, distrust of each other, was growing among the people. Hence the legalizing of the underground, the philosophy of violence by the government, an effort to control the revolt that was brewing. Yet the land-dwellers had managed to take no action at all and to ignore the growing number of vicious acts. But not all were content to drowse. One man was aroused. He was Rastinac. They were Rastinac's hope, those six stars, the gods to which he prayed. When they passed quickly out of his sight, he would continue his pacing, meditating for the twenty-thousandth time on a means for reaching one of those ships and using it to visit the stars. The end of his fantasies was always a curse because of the futility of such hopes. He was doomed. Mankind was doomed. And it was all the more maddening, because man would not admit that he was through. Ended, that is, as a human being. 
Man was changing into something not quite Homo sapiens. It might be a desirable change, but it would mean the finish of his climb upwards. So it seemed to Rastignac, and he, being the man he was, had decided to do something about it, even if it meant violence. That was why he was now in the Well Dungeon. He was an advocator of violence against the status quo. Chapter 2 There was another cell next to his. It was also at the bottom of a well and was separated from his by a thin wall of cement. A window had been set into it so that the prisoners could talk to each other. Rastignac did not care for the woman who had been let down into the adjoining cell, but she was somebody to talk to. Amphib changelings was the name given to those human beings who had been stolen from their cradles and raised among the non-humanoid amphibians as their own. The girl in the adjoining cell, Lucienne, was such a person. It was not her fault that she was a blood-drinking amphib, yet he could not help disliking her for what she had done and for the things she stood for. She was in prison because she had been caught in the act of stealing a man-child from its cradle. This was no crime, but she had left in the cradle under the covers a savage and bloodthirsty little monster that had leaped up and slashed the throat of the unsuspecting baby's mother. Her cell was lit by a cageful of glowworms. Rastignac, peering through the grill, could see her shadowy shape in the inner cell inside the wall. She rose languorously and stepped into the circle of dim orange light cast by the insects. Bazumafwe, she greeted him. It annoyed him that she called him her brother, and it annoyed him even more to know that she knew it. It was true that she had some excuse for thus addressing him. She did resemble him. Like him, she had straight, glossy, blue-black hair, thick, bracket-shaped eyebrows, brown eyes, a straight nose, and a prominent chin. And where his build was superbly masculine, hers was magnificently feminine. Nevertheless, this was not her reason for so speaking to him. She knew the disgust the Landwalker had for the Amphib Changeling and she took a perverted delight in baiting him. He was proud that he seldom allowed her to see that she was annoying him. Bazou Zafip, he said. Good evening, woman of the amphibians. Mockingly, she said, Have you been watching the six flying stars, Jean-Jacques? V. I do so every time they come over. Why do you eat your heart out because you cannot fly up to them and then voyage among the stars on one of them? He refused to give her the satisfaction of knowing his real reason. He did not want her to realize how little he thought of mankind and its chances for surviving, as humanity, upon the face of this planet, Le Bopfe. I look at them because they remind me that man was once captain of his soul. Then you admit that the Landwalker is weak? I think he is on the way to becoming non-human, which is to say that he is weak, yes. But what I say about land-man goes for sea-man, too. You changelings are becoming more amphibian every day and less human. Through the skins, the amphibs are gradually changing you completely. Soon you will be completely sea-people. She laughed scornfully, exposing perfect white teeth as she did so. The sea will win out against the land. It launches itself against the shore and shakes it with the crash of its body. 
It eats away the rock and the dirt and absorbs it into its own self. It can't be worn away nor caught and held in a net. It is elusive and all-powerful and never tiring. Lucienne paused for a breath. He said, That's a very pretty analogy, but it doesn't apply. You sea folk are as much flesh and blood as we land folk. What hurts us hurts you. She put a hand around one bar. The glow light fell upon it in such a way that it showed plainly the webbing of skin between her fingers. He glanced at it with a faint repulsion, under which was a countercurrent of attraction. This was the hand that had indirectly shed blood. She glanced at him sideways, challenged him in trembling tones. You are not one to throw stones, Jean-Jacques. I have heard that you eat meat. Fish, not meat. That is part of my philosophy of violence, he retorted. I maintain that one of the reasons man is losing his power and strength is that he has so long been upon a vegetable diet. He is as cowed and submissive as the grass-eating beasts of the fields. Lucienne put her face against the bars. That is interesting, she said. But how did you happen to begin eating fish? I thought we amphibs alone did that. What Lucienne had just said angered him. He had no reply. Rastanac knew he should not be talking to the sea-changeling. They were glib and seductive and always searching for ways to twist your thoughts. But being Rastanac, he had to talk. Moreover, it was so difficult to find anybody who would listen to his ideas that he could not resist the temptation. I was given fish by the Sassaror Mapfarity when I was a child. We lived along the seashore. Mapfarity was a child, too, and we played together. Don't eat fish, my parents said to me. That meant eat it. So, despite my distaste at the idea and my squeamish stomach, I did eat fish, and I liked it. And as I grew to manhood, I adopted the philosophy of violence, and I continued to eat fish, although I am not a changeling. What did your skin do when it detected you? Lucienne asked. Her eyes were wide and luminous with wonder, and a sort of glee as if she relished the confession of his sins. Also, he knew she was taunting him about the futility of his ideas of violence so long as he was a prisoner of the skin. He frowned in annoyance at the reminder of the skin. Much thought had he given in a weak way to the possibility of life without the skin. Ashamed now of his weak resistance to the skin, he blustered a bit in front of the teasing Amphib girl. Mapfarity and I discovered something that most people don't know, he answered boastfully. We found that if you can stand the shocks your skin gives you when you do something wrong, the skin gets tired and quits after a while. Of course, your skin recharges itself, and the next time you eat fish it shocks you again. But after very many shocks it becomes accustomed, forgets its conditioning, and leaves you alone. Lucienne laughed and said in a low, conspirational tone, So you're... Sassassaror Pal and you adopted the philosophy of violence because you remained fish and meat-eaters? Yes, we did. When Mapfarity reached puberty, he became a giant and went off to live in a castle in the forest. But we have remained friends through our connection in the underground. Your parents must have suspected that you were a fish-eater when you first proposed your philosophy of violence, she said. Suspicion isn't proof, he answered. 
But I shouldn't be telling you this, Lucienne. I, I feel it is safe for me to do so only because you will never have a chance to tell on me. You will soon be taken to Chalice, and there you will stay until you have been cured." She shivered and said, "'This Chalice, what is it?' "'It is a place far to the north where both Terrans and Sassassarors send their incorrigibles. It is an extinct volcano whose steep-sided interior makes an inescapable prison. There those who have persisted in unnatural behavior are given special treatment.' "'They are bled?' she asked, her eyes widening as her tongue flicked over her lips again hungrily. No, a special breed of skin is given to them to wear. These skins shock them more powerfully than the ordinary ones, and the shocks are associated with the habit they are trying to cure. The shocks affect a cure. Also, these special skins are used to detect hidden unnatural emotions. They recondition the deviate. The result is that when the chaliced man is judged able to go out and take his place in society again, he is thoroughly reconditioned. Then his regular skin is given back to him, and it has no trouble keeping him in line from then on. The chaliced man is a very good citizen. And what if a revolter doesn't become chaliced? Then he stays in chalice until he decides to become so. Her voice rose sharply as she said, but if I go there and I am not fed the diet of the amphibs, I will grow old and die. No, the government will feed you the diet you need until you are reconditioned. Except, he paused. Except I won't get blood, she wailed. Then, realizing she was acting undignified before a landman, she firmed her voice. The king of the amphibians will not allow them to do this to me, she said. When he hears of it, he will demand my return, and if the king of men refuses, my king will use violence to get me back." Rastanak smiled and said, "'I hope he does. Then perhaps my people will wake up and get rid of their skins and make war upon your people.' "'So that is what you philosophers of violence want, is it? Well, you will not get it. My father, the Amphim king, will not be so stupid as to declare war.' I suppose not, replied Rastanak. He will send a band to rescue you. If they're caught, they'll claim to be criminals and say they are not under the king's orders. Lucienne looked upwards to see if a guard was hanging over the well's mouth, listening. Perceiving no one, she nodded and said, You have guessed it correctly, and that is why we laugh so much at you stupid humans. You know as well as we do what's going on, but you are afraid to tell us so. You keep clinging to the idea that your turn-of-the-other-cheek policy will soften us and ensure peace." "'Not I,' said Rastanak. "'I know perfectly well there is only one solution to man's problems. That is—that is violence,' she finished for him. "'That is what you have been preaching, and that is why you are in this cell, waiting for trial.' "'You don't understand,' he said. Men are not put into the chalice for proposing new philosophies. As long as they behave naturally, they may say what they wish. They may even petition the king that the new philosophy be made a law. The king passes it on to the chamber of deputies. They consider it and put it up to the people. If the people like it, it becomes a law. The only trouble with that procedure is that it may take ten years before the law is considered by the chamber of deputies. 
And in those ten years, she mocked him, the amphibs and the amphibian changelings will have won the planet. That is true, he said. The king of the humans is a Sassassaror, and the king of the Sassassaror is a man, said Lucienne. Our king can't see any reason for changing the status quo. After all, it is the Sassassaror who are responsible for the skins and for man's position in the sentient society of this planet. Why should he be favorable to a policy of violence? The Sassassarors loathe violence. And so you have preached violence without waiting for it to become a law, and for that you are now in this cell. Not exactly. The Sassassarors have long known that to suppress too much of man's naturally belligerent nature only results in an explosion. So they have legalized illegality, up to a point. Thus the king officially made me the chief of the underground, and gave me a state license to preach, but not practice, violence. I am even allowed to advocate overthrow of the present system of government, as long as I take no action that is too productive of results. I am in jail now because the Minister of Ill Will put me here. He had my skin examined, and it was found to be unhealthy. He thought I'd be better off locked up until I became healthy again. But the King? Chapter 3 Lucienne's laughter was like the call of a silver-bell bird. Whatever her unhuman appetites, she had a beautiful voice. She said, How comical! And how do you, with your brave ideas, like being regarded as a harmless figure of fun, or as a sick man? I like it as well as you would, he growled. She gripped the bars of her window until the tendons on the back of her long, thin hands stood out and the membranes between her fingers stretched like wind-blown tents. Face twisted, she spat at him. Coward! Why don't you kill somebody and break out of this ridiculous mold, that skin that the Sassassarors have poured you into? Rastanak was silent. That was a good question. Why didn't he? Killing was the logical result of his philosophy. But the skin kept him docile. Yes, he could vaguely see that he had purposely shut his eyes to the destination towards which his ideas were slowly but inevitably traveling. And there was another facet to the answer to her question. If he had to kill, he would not kill a man. His philosophy was directed towards the amphibians and the sea-changelings. He said, Violence doesn't necessarily mean the shedding of blood, Lucien. My philosophy urges that we take a more vigorous action, that we overthrow some of the biosocial institutions which have imprisoned man and stripped him of his dignity as an individual. Yes, I have heard that you want man to stop wearing the skin. That is what has horrified your people, isn't it? Yes, he said, and I understand it has had the same effect among the amphibians. She bridled her brown eyes, flashing in the feeble glowworm's light. Why shouldn't it? What would we be without our skins? What indeed, he said, laughing derisively afterwards. Earnestly, she said, You don't understand. We amphibians, our skins, are not like yours. We do not wear them for the same reason you do. You are imprisoned by your skins. They, they tell you how to feel, what to think. Above all, they keep you from getting ideas about non-cooperation or non-integration with nature as a whole. 
That, to us individualistic amphibians, is false. The purpose of our skins is to make sure that our king's subjects understand what he wants, so that we may all act as one unit and thus further the progress of the sea-folk." The first time Rastignac had heard this statement he had howled with laughter. Now, however, knowing that she could not see the fallacy, he did not try to argue the point. The amphibs were in their way as hide-bound, no pun intended, as the land-walkers. Look, Lucien, he said, there are only three places where a man may take off his skin. One is in his own home, when he may hang it upon the hall-tree. Two is when he is, like us, in jail, and therefore may not harm anybody. The third is when a man is king. Now, you and I have been without our skins for a week. We have gone longer without them than anybody except the king. Tell me true, don't you feel free for the first time in your life? Don't you feel as if you belong to nobody but yourself, and that you are accountable to no one but yourself, and that you love that feeling? And don't you dread the day we will be let out of prison and made to wear our skins again? That day which, curiously enough, will be the very day that we will lose our freedom." Lucienne looked as if she didn't know what he was talking about. "'You'll see what I mean when we are freed and the skins are put back upon us,' he said. Immediately after, he was embarrassed. He remembered that she would go to the chalice where one of the heavy and powerful skins used for unnaturals would be fastened to her shoulders. Lucienne did not notice. She was considering the last but most telling point in her argument. "'You cannot win against us,' she said, watching him narrowly for the effect of her words. "'We have a weapon that is irresistible. We have immortality.' His face did not lose its imperturbability. She continued, And what is more, we can give immortality to anyone who casts off his skin and adopts ours. Don't think that your people don't know this. For instance, during the last year more than two thousand humans living along the beaches deserted and went over to us, the amphibs. He was a little shocked to hear this, but he did not doubt her. He remembered the mysterious case of the schooner Le Pauvre Pierre which had been found drifting and crewless, and he remembered a conversation he had with a fisherman in his home port of Marek. He put his hands behind his back and began pacing. Lucienne continued, staring at him through the bars, despite the fact that her face was in the shadows. He could see, or feel, her smile. He had humiliated her, but she had won in the end. Rastignac quit his limited roving and called up to the guard. The guard leaned over the grill. His large hat with its tall wings sticking from the peak was green in the daytime, but now illuminated only by a far-off torchlight and by a glowworm coiled around the band, it was black. He said loudly. What time is it? What do you care what time it is? And he concluded with the stock phrase of the jailer unchanged through millennia and over light-years. You're not going any place, are you?" Rastignac threw his head back to howl at the guard, but stopped to wince at the sudden pain in his neck. After uttering, Sec plu, and Spuisti, both of which were close enough to the old Terran French so that a language specialist might have recognized them, he said more calmly, 
if you would let me out on the ground, Monsieur Le Foutraquet, and give me a good épée, I would show you where I am going, or at least where my sword is going. I'm thinking of a nice sheath for it. Tonight he had a special reason for keeping the attention of the King's Mucketeer directed towards himself. So when the guard grew tired of returning insults, mainly because his limited imagination could invent no new ones, Rastanac began telling jokes. They were broad and aimed at the mucketeer's narrow intellect. Then, said Rastanac, there was the itinerant salesman whose cephel threw a shoe. He knocked on the door of the hut of the nearest peasant and said, What was said by the salesman was never known. A strangled gasp had come from above. Chapter 4 Rastanac saw something enormous blot out the smaller shadow of the guard. Then both figures disappeared. A moment later a silhouette cut across the lines of the grill. Unoiled hinges screeched, the bars lifted. A rope uncoiled from above to fall at Rastanac's feet. He seized it and felt himself being drawn powerfully upwards. When he came over the edge of the well he saw that his rescuer was a giant sassaror. The light from the glowworm on the guard's hat lit up feebly his face, which was orthagnathous, and had quite humanoid eyes and lips. Large canine teeth stuck out from the mouth, and its huge ears were tipped with feathery tufts. The forehead down to the eyebrows looked as if it needed a shave, but Rastanac knew that more light would show the blue-black shade came from many small feathers, not stubbled hair. Map Faraday, Rastanac said. It's good to see you after all these years. The Sassasserer giant put his hand on his friend's shoulder. Clenched, it was almost as big as Rastanac's head. He spoke with a voice like a lion coughing at the bottom of a deep well. It's good to see you again, my friend. What are you doing here? said Rastanac, tears running down his face as he stroked the great fingers on his shoulder. Mapfarity's huge ears quivered like the wings of a bat tied to a rock and unable to fly off. The tufts of feathers at their ends grew stiff and suddenly crackled with tiny sparks. The electrical display was the equivalent of the human's weeping. Both creatures discharged emotion. Their bodies chose different avenues and manifestations. Nevertheless, the sight of the other's joy affected each deeply. I have come to rescue you said Mapfarity. I caught Archambaud here, he indicated the other man, stealing eggs from my golden goose and— Raoul Archambaud, pronounced Wal-Shibvo, interrupted excitedly. I showed him my license to steal eggs from giants who were raising counterfeit geese, but he was going to lock me up anyway. He, he was going to take my skin off and feed me on meat. Meat, said Rastanac, astonished and revolted despite himself. Mapfarity, what have you been doing in that castle of yours? Mapfarity lowered his voice to match the distant roar of a cataract. I haven't been very active these last few years, he said, because I am so big that it hurts my feet if I walk very much. So I've had much time to think. And I, being logical, decided that the next step after eating fish was eating meat. It couldn't make me any larger. So... I ate meat, and while doing so I came to the same conclusion that you apparently have done independently. That is, the philosophy of—of of violence, interrupted Archambaud. 
Ah, Jean-Jacques, there must be some mystic bond that brings two humans of such different backgrounds as yours and the Sassassator together, giving you both the same philosophy. When I explained what you had been doing, and that you were in jail because you had advocated getting rid of the skins, Matt Faraday petitioned— The king to make an official jailbreak, said Matt Faraday, with an impatient glance at the roly-poly egg-stealer. And— The king agreed, broke in Archambaud. Provided Matt Faraday would turn in his counterfeit goose, and provided you would agree to say no more about abandoning skins, but— The giant's basso profundo redundo pushed the egg-stealer's high pitch aside. If this squealer will quit interrupting, perhaps we can get on with the rescue. We'll talk later, if you don't mind. At that moment Lucienne's voice floated up from the bottom of her cell. Jean-Jacques, my love, my brave, my own! Would you abandon me to the chalice? Please, take me with you. You will need somebody to hide you when the Minister of Ill-Will sends his mucketeers after you. I can hide you where no one will ever find you." Her voice was mocking, but there was an undercurrent of anxiety to it. Matt Faraday muttered, "'She will hide us, yes, at the bottom of a sea-cave where we will eat strange food and suffer a change.' Never trust an amphib finished Archambaud for him. Matt Faraday forgot to whisper. Bete Colvin nous faisiez femme ça, he roared. A shocked hush covered the courtyard. Only Matt Faraday's wrathful breathing could be heard. Then, disembodied, Lucienne's voice floated from the well. Jean-Jacques, do not forget that I am the foster daughter of the King of the Amphibians. If you were to take me with you, I could assure you of safety and a warm welcome in the halls of the Sea King's palace." "'Bah!' said Map Faraday. "'That web-footed witch!' Rastanac did not reply to her. He took the broad silk belt and the sheathed epee from Archambaud and buckled them around his waist. Map Faraday handed him a mucketeer's hat. He clapped that on firmly. Last of all, he took the skin that the fat egg-stealer had been holding out to him. For the first time, he hesitated. It was his skin, the one he had been wearing since he was six. It had grown with him, fed off his blood for twenty-two years, clung to him as clothing, censor, and castigator, and parted from him only when he was inside the walls of his own house, went swimming, or, as during the last seven days, when he was in jail. A week ago, after they had removed his second skin, he had felt naked and helpless and cut off from his fellow-creatures. But that was a week ago. Since then, as he had remarked to Lucienne, he had experienced the birth of a strange feeling. It was, at first, frightening. It made him cling to the bars as if they were the only stable thing in the center of a whirling universe. Later, when that first giddiness had passed, it was succeeded by another intoxication, the joy of being an individual, the knowledge that he was separate, not a part of a multitude. Without the skin he could think as he pleased. He did not have a censor. Now he was on level ground again, out of a cell. But as soon as he had put that prison shaft behind him he was faced with the old second skin. Archambaud held it out like a cloak in his hands. It looked much like a ragged garment. It was pale and limp and roughly rectangular, with four extensions at each corner. 
When Rastignac put it on his back, it would sink four tiny hollow teeth into his veins, and the suckers on the inner surface of its flat body would cling to him. Its long upper extensions would wrap themselves around his shoulders and over his chest, the lower around his loins and thighs. Soon it would lose its paleness and flaccidity, become pink and slightly convex, pulsing with Rastignac's blood. Chapter 5 Rastignac hesitated for a few seconds, then he allowed the habit of a lifetime to take over. Sighing, he turned his back. In a moment he felt the cold flesh descend over his shoulders and the little bite of the four teeth as they attached the skin to his shoulders. Then, as his blood poured into the creature, he felt it grow warm and strong. It spread out and followed the passages it had long ago been conditioned to follow, wrapped him warmly and lovingly and comfortably. And he knew, though he couldn't feel it, that it was pushing nerves into the grooves along the teeth, nerves to connect with his. A minute later he experienced the first of the expected rapport. It was nothing that you could put a mental finger on. It was just a diffused tingling, and then the sudden consciousness of how the others around him felt. They were ghosts in the background of his mind, yet pale and ectoplasmic as they were, they were easily identifiable. Map Faraday loomed above the others, a transparent colossus radiating streamers of confidence in his clumsy strength. A meat-eater, uncertain about the future with a hope and trust in Rastignac to show him the right way, and with a strong current of anger against the conqueror who had inflicted the skin upon him. Archimbaud was a shorter phantom, roly-poly even in his psychic manifestations, emitting bursts of impatience because other people did not talk fast enough to suit him, his mind leaping on ahead of their tongues, his fingers wriggling to wrap themselves around something valuable preferably the eggs of the golden goose, and a general eagerness to be up and about and onwards. He was one round fidget on two legs, yet a good man for any project requiring action. Faintly Rastignac detected the slumbering guard as if he were the tendrils of some plant at the sea-bottom, floating in the green twilight at peace and unconscious. And even more faintly he felt Lucienne's presence, shielded by the walls of the shaft. Hers was a pale and light hand, one whose fingers tapped a barely heard code of impotent rage and voiceless screaming fear. Yet beneath that anguish was a base of confidence and mockery at others. She might be temporarily upset, but when the chance came for her to do something she would seize it with every ability at her command. Another radiation dipped into the general picture and out. A wild glowworm had swooped over them and disturbed the smooth reflection built up by the skins. This was the way the skins worked. They penetrated into you and found out what you were feeling and emoting, and then they broadcast it to other close-by skins, which then projected their host's psychosomatic responses. The whole was then integrated so that each skin-wearer could detect the group feeling, and at the same time, though in a much duller manner, the feeling of the individuals of the gestalt. That wasn't the only function of the skin. The parasite created in the biofactories had several other social and biological uses. Rastignac almost fell into a reverie at that point. 
It was nothing unusual. The effect of the skins was a slowing-down one. The wearer thought more slowly, acted more leisurely, and was much more contented. But now, by a deliberate wrenching of himself from the feeling pattern, Rastanak woke up. There were things to do, and standing around and drinking in the lotus of the group rapport was not one of them. He gestured at the prostrate form of the mucketeer. You didn't hurt him. The Sassassaror rumbled. No, I scratched him with a little venom of the dream snake. He will sleep for an hour or so. Besides, I would not be allowed to hurt him. You forget that all this is carefully staged by the king's official jailbreaker. Medet, swore Rastanak. Alarmed, Archambaud said, What's the matter, Jean-Jacques? Can't we do anything on our own? Must the king meddle in everything? You wouldn't want us to take a chance and have to shed blood, would you?" breathed Archambaud. "'What are you carrying those swords for, as a decoration?' Rastanak snarled. "'Si la warned Mapfarity. "'If you alarm the other guards, you will embarrass them. They will be forced to do their duty and recapture you, and the jailbreaker would be reprimanded because he had fallen down on his job. He might even get a demotion.' Rastanak was so upset that his skin, reacting to the negative fields racing over the skin and the hormone imbalance of his blood, writhed away from his back. What are we, a bunch of children playing war? Mapfarity growled. We are all God's children, and we mustn't hurt anyone if we can help it. Mapfarity, you eat meat. admitted the giant but it is the flesh of unintelligent creatures. I have not yet shed the blood of any being that can talk with the tongue of man." Rastanak snorted and said, "'If you stick with me, you will some day do that, Mifwe Mapfarity. There is no other course. It is inevitable.' Nature spare me the day, but if it comes, it will find Mapfarity unafraid. They do not call me giant for nothing." Rastanak sighed and walked ahead. Sometimes he wondered if the members of his underground, or anybody else for that matter, ever realized the grim conclusions formed by the philosophy of violence. The amphibians, he was sure, did. And they were doing something positive about it. But it was the amphibians who had driven Rastanak to adopt a philosophy of violence. Law, he said again. Let's go. The three of them walked out of the huge courtyard and through the open gate. Nearby stood a short man whose skin gleamed black-red in the light shed by the two glowworms attached to his shoulders. The skin was oversized and hung to the ground. The king's man, however, did not think he was a comic figure. He sputtered, and the red of his face matched the color of the skin on his back. "'You took long enough,' he said accusingly, and then, when Rastanak opened his mouth to protest, the jailbreaker said, Never mind, never mind. Sanapwat. The thing is that we get you away fast. The Minister of Ill Will has doubtless by now received word that an official jailbreak is planned for tonight. He will send a company of his mucketeers to intercept you. By coming in advance of the appointed time, we shall have time to escape before the official rescue party arrives. How much time do we have? asked Rastanak. The King's man said, Let's see. Uh, after I escort you through the rooms of the Duke, the King's foster-brother, 
He is most favorable to the violent philosophy, you know, and has petitioned the king to become your official patron, which petition will be considered at the next meeting of the Chamber of Deputies in three months. Let's see, where was I? Ah, yes, I escort you through the rooms of the king's brother. You will be disguised as his majesty's mucketeers, ostensibly looking for the escaped prisoners. From the rooms of the duke you will be let out through a small door in the wall of the palace itself. A car will be waiting. From then on it will be up to you. I suggest, however, that you make a dash for Mapfarity's castle. Follow the Rue de Nue, that is your best chance. The mucketeers have been pulled off that boulevard. However, it is possible that Overpin, the ill-will minister, may see that order and rescind it, realizing what it means. If he does, I suppose I will see you back in your cell, Rastanac. He bowed to the Sassaror and Archambaud, and said, And you two gentlemen will then be with him? And then what? rumbled Mapfarity. According to the law, you will be allowed one more jailbreak. Any more after that will, of course, be illegal. That is unthinkable. Rastanac unsheathed his epée and slashed it at the air. Let the mucketeers stand in my way, he said fiercely. I will cut them down with this. The jailbreaker staggered back, hands outthrust. Please, Monsieur Rastignac, please, don't even think about it. You, you know that your philosophy is as yet illegal. The shedding of blood is an act that will be regarded with horror throughout the sentient planet. People would think you are an amphibian. The amphibians know what they're doing far better than we do, answered Rastignac. Why do you think they're winning against us humans? Suddenly, before anybody could answer, the sound of blaring horns came from somewhere on the ramparts. Shouts went up, drums began to beat, calling the mucketeers to alert. And above it all came the roar of a giant Sassaror voice. An earthship has landed in the sea, and the pilot of the ship is in the hands of the amphibians. As the meaning of the words seeped into Rastanac's consciousness, he made a sudden violent movement, and began to tear the skin from his body. Chapter 6 Rastanac ran down the steps out into the courtyard. He seized the jailbreaker's arm and demanded the key to the grills. Dazed, the white-faced official meekly and silently handed it to him. Without his skin, Rastanac was no longer fearfully inhibited. If you were forceful enough and did not behave according to the normal pattern, you could get just about anything you wanted. The average man or Sassaror did not know how to react to his violence. By the time they had recovered from their confusion, he could be miles away. Such a thought flashed through his head as he ran towards the prison wells. At the same time, he heard the horn blasts of the king's mucketeers and knew that he shortly would have a different type of man to deal with. The mucketeers' closest approach to soldiers in this pacifistic land wore skins that conditioned them to be more belligerent than the common citizen. They carried epees, and while it was true that their points were dull and their wielders had never engaged in serious swordsmanship, the mucketeers could be dangerous from a viewpoint of numbers alone. Mapfarity bellowed, Jean-Jacques, what are you doing? He called back over his shoulder. I'm taking Lucienne with us. She can help us get the Earthman from the amphibians. The giant lumbered up behind him, threw a rope down to the eager hands of Lucienne, and pulled her up without effort to the top of the well. 
A second later Rastignac leapt upon Mapfarity's back, dug his hands under the upper fringe of the huge skin, and, ignoring its electrical blasts, ripped downwards. Mapfarity cried out with shock and surprise as his skin flopped on the stones like a devilfish on dry land. Archambaud ran up, then, and, without bothering to explain, the Sassassaror and the man seized him and peeled off his artificial hide. "'Now we're all free men,' panted Rastignac, "'and the mucketeers have no way of locating us if we hide, nor can they punish us with shocks.' He put the giant on his right side, Lucien on his left, and the egg-stealer behind him. He removed the jailbreaker's rapier from his sheath. The official was too astonished to protest. La Mesofwa, cried Rastignac, parodying in his grotesque French the old Gallic war cry of Allons, mes enfants. The king's official came to life and screamed orders at the group of mucketeers who had poured into the courtyard. They halted in confusion. They could not hear him above the roar of horns and thunder of drums and the people sticking their heads out of windows and shouting. Rastignac scooped up with his épée one of the abandoned skins flopping on the floor and threw it at the foremost guard. It descended upon the man's head, knocking off his hat and wrapping itself around the head and shoulders. The guard dropped his sword and staggered backwards into the group. At the same time the escapees charged and bowled over their feeble opposition. It was here that Rastignac drew first blood. The tip of his épée drove past a bewildered mucketeer's blade and entered the fellow's throat just below the chin. It did not penetrate very far because of the dullness of the point. Nevertheless, when Rastignac withdrew his sword, he saw blood spurt. It was the first flower of violence, this scarlet blossom set against the whiteness of a man's skin. It would, if he had worn his skin, have sickened him. Now he exulted with a shout of triumph. Lucien swooped up from behind him, bent over the fallen man, her fingers dipped into the blood and went to her mouth. Greedily she sucked her fingers. Rastignac struck her cheek hard with the flat of his hand. She staggered back, her eyes narrowed, but she laughed. The next moments were busy as they entered the castle, knocked down two mucketeers who tried to prevent their passage to the Duke's rooms, then filed across the long suite. The Duke rose from his writing-desk to greet them. Rastignac determined to sever all ties and impress the government with the fact that he meant a real violence, snarled at his benefactor. The Duke was disconcerted at this harsh command, so obviously impossible to carry out. He blinked and said nothing. The escapees hurried past him to the door that gave exit to the outside. They pushed it open and stepped out into the car that waited for them. A chauffeur leaned against its thin wooden body. Mapfarity pushed him aside and climbed in. The others followed. Rastignac was the last to get in. He examined in a glance the vehicle they were supposed to make their flight in. It was as good a car as you could find in the realm. A Renault of the large class. It had a long, boat-shaped scarlet body. There wasn't a scratch on it. It had seats for six, and that it had the power to outrun most anything was indicated by the two extra pairs of legs sticking out from the bottom. There were twelve pairs of legs, equine in form and shod with the best steel. It was the kind of vehicle you wanted when you might have to take off across the country. Wheeled cars could go faster on the highway, but this Renault would not be daunted by water, plowed fields, or steep hillsides. Rastignac climbed into the driver's seat, 
seized the wheel and pressed his foot down on the accelerator. The nerve spot beneath the pedal sent a message to the muscles hidden beneath the hood and the legs projecting from the body. The Renault lurched forward, steadied, and began to pick up speed. It entered a broad paved highway, hooves drummed, sparks shot out from the steel shoes. Rastanak guided the brainless, blind creature concealed within the body. He was helped by the somatically generated radar it employed to steer it past obstacles. When he came to the Rue de Ney, he slowed it down to a trot. There was no use tiring it out. Halfway up the gentle slope of the boulevard, however, a Ford galloped out from a side street. Its seats bristled with tall peaked hats with outspread glowworm wings and withdrawn epées. Rastanak shoved the accelerator to the floor. The Renault broke into a gallop. The Ford turned so that it would present its broadside. As there was a fence-work of tall shrubbery growing along the boulevard, the Ford was able thus to block most of the passage. But just before his vehicle reached the Ford, Rastanak pressed the jump button. Few cars had this. Only sportsmen or the royalty could afford to have such a neural circuit installed, and it did not allow for gradations in leaping. It was an all-or-none reaction. The legs spurned the ground in perfect unison and with every bit of the power in them. There was no holding back. The nose lifted. The Renault soared into the air. There was a shout, a slight swaying as the trailing hooves struck the heads of the musketeers who had been stupid enough not to duck, and the vehicle landed with a screeching lurch upright on the other side of the ford. Nor did it pause. Half an hour later Rastanak reined in the car under a large tree whose shadow protected them. "'We're well out in the country,' he said. "'What do we do now?' asked an impatient Archambaud. First, we must know more about this Earthman,' Rastanak answered. "'Then we can decide.'" Chapter 7 Dawn broke through night's guard and spilled a crimson swath on the hills to the east and the six flying stars faded from sight like a necklace of glowing jewels dipped into an ink-bottle. Rastanak halted the weary Renault on the top of a hill, looked down over the landscape spread out for miles below him. Mapfarity's castle, a tall, rose-colored tower of flying buttresses, flashed in the rising sun. It stood on another hill by the seashore. The country around was a madman's dream of color. Yet, to Rastanak, every hue sickened the eye. That bright green, for instance, was poisonous. That flaming scarlet was bloody. That pale yellow, roomy. That velvet black, funeral. That pure white, maggoty. Rastanak! It was Mapfarity's bass strumming irritation deep in his chest. What? What do we do now? Jean-Jacques was silent. Archambaud spoke plaintively. I'm not used to going without my skin. There are things I miss. For one thing, I don't know what you're thinking, Jean-Jacques. I don't know whether you're angry at me or love me or are indifferent to me. I don't know where other people are. I don't feel the joy of little animals playing, the freedom of the flight of birds, the ghostly plucking of the growing grass, the sweet stab of the mating lust of the wild-horned apigator the humming of bees working to build a hive, and the sleepy, stupid arrogance of the giant cabbage-eating Dunez. I can feel nothing without the skin I have worn so long. I feel alone. 
Rastanak replied. You are not alone. I am with you. Lucienne spoke in a low voice, her large brown eyes upon his. I too feel alone. My skin is gone. The skin by which I knew how to act according to the wisdom of my father, the Amphib King. Now that it is gone and I cannot hear his voice through the vibrating tympanium, I do not know what to do. At present, replied Rastanak, you will do as I tell you. Map Faraday repeated, What now? Rastanak became brisk. He said, We go to your castle, giant. We use your smithy to put sharp points on our swords, points to slide through a man's body from front to back. Don't pale. That is what we must do. And then we pick up your goose that lays the golden eggs, for we must have money if we are to act efficiently. After that we buy, or steal, a boat, and we go to wherever the Earthman is held captive, and we rescue him. And then? said Lucienne, her eyes shining with emotion. What you do then will be up to you. But I am going to leave this planet and voyage with the Earthman to other worlds. Silence. Then Map Faraday said, Why leave here? Because there is no hope for this land. Nobody will give up his skin. Le Beaupay is doomed to a lotus life, and that is not for me. Archambaud jerked a thumb at the Amphib girl. What about her people? They may win, the Water People. What's the difference? It will be just the exchange of one skin for another. Before I heard of the landing of the Earthman, I was going to fight no matter what the cost to me or inevitable defeat. But not now. Matt Faraday's rumble was angry. Ah, Jean-Jacques, this is not my comrade talking. Are you sure you haven't swallowed your skin? You talk as if you were inside out. What is the matter with your brain? Can't you see that it will indeed make a difference if the amphibs get the upper hand? Can't you see who is making the amphibs behave the way they have been? Rastanac urged the Renault toward the rose-colored lacy castle high upon the hill. The vehicle trotted tiredly along the rough and narrow forest path. What do you mean? he said. I mean, the Amphibs got along fine with the Sassassaror until a new element entered their lives, the Earthmen. Then the antagonizing began. What is this new element? It's the Changelings, the mixture of Earthmen and Amphibs, or Sassassaror and Terran. Add it up, turn it around, look at it from any angle. It is the Changelings who are behind this restlessness, the human element. Another thing. The Amphibs have always had skins different from ours. Our factories create our skins to set up an affinity and communication between their wearers and all of nature. They are designed to make it easier for every man to love his neighbor. Now, the strange thing about the Amphibs' skin is that they, too, were once designed to do such things. But in the past thirty or forty years, new skins have been created for one primary purpose, to establish a communication between the Sea King and his subjects. Not only that, the skins can be operated at long distances so that the king may punish any disobedient subject, and they are set so that they establish affinity only among the waterfolk, not between them and all of nature. I had gathered some of that during my conversations with Lucienne, said Rastanac, but I did not know it had gone to such lengths. Yes, and you may safely bet that the changelings are behind it. Then it is the human element that is corrupting, 
What else? Rastanak said, Lucienne, what do you say to this? I think it is best that you leave this world, or else turn changeling Amphib. Why should I join you Amphibs? A man like you could become a Sea King. And drink blood? I would rather drink blood than mate with a man. Almost, that is. But I would make an exception with you, Jean-Jacques. If it had been a land woman who made such a blunt proposal, he would have listened with equanimity. There was no modesty, false or otherwise, in the country of the skin-wearers. But to hear such a thing from a woman whose mouth had drunk the blood of a living man filled him with disgust. Yet he had to admit Lucienne was beautiful. If she had not been a blood-drinker... Though he lacked his receptive skin, Mapfarity seemed to sense Rastanac's emotions. He said, You must not blame her too much, Jean-Jacques. Sea-changelings are conditioned from babyhood to love blood, and for a very definite purpose, too, unnatural though it is. When the time comes for hordes of changelings to sweep out of the sea and overwhelm the landfolk, they will have no compunctions about cutting the throats of their fellow-creatures. Lucienne laughed. The rest of them shifted uneasily, but did not comment. Rastanac changed the subject. How did you find out about the Earthman, Mapfarity? he said. The Sassassaror smiled. Two long yellow canines shone wetly. The nose, which had nostrils set in the sides, gaped open. Blue sparks shot out from it. At the same time, the feathered tufts on the ends of the elephantine ears stiffened and crackled with red and blue sparks. I have been doing something besides breeding geese to lay golden eggs, he said. I have set traps for waterfolk, and I have caught two. These I caged in a dungeon in my castle, and I experimented with them. I removed their skins and put them on me, and I found out many interesting facts. He leered at Lucienne, who was no longer laughing, and he said, For instance, I discovered that the Sea King can locate, talk to, and punish any of his subjects anywhere in the sea or along the coast. He has booster skins planted all over his realm so that any message he sends will reach the receiver, no matter how far away he is. Moreover, he has conditioned each and every skin, so that by uttering a certain code word to which only one particular skin will respond, he may stimulate it to shock or even kill its carrier. Mapfarity continued. I analyzed those two skins in my lab, and then, using them as models, I made a number of duplicates in my flesh forge. They lacked only the nerves that would enable the Sea King to shock us. Rastanac smiled his appreciation of this coup. Mapfarity's ears crackled blue sparks of joy, his equivalent of blushing. Ah, then you have doubtless listened in on many broadcasts, and you know where the Earthman is located. Yes, said the giant. He is in the palace of the Amphib King, upon the island of Catapromenoin. That is only thirty miles out to the sea. Rastanac did not know what he would do, but he had two advantages in the Amphibs, Skins, and in Lucienne. And he burned to get off this doomed planet, this land of men too sunk in false happiness, sloth, and stupidity, to see that soon death would come from the water. He had two possible avenues of escape. One was to use the newly arrived Earthman's knowledge so that the fuels necessary to propel the ferry rockets could be manufactured. 
The rockets themselves still stood in a museum. Rastignac had not planned to use them, because neither he nor anyone else on this planet knew how to make fuel for them. Such secrets had long ago been forgotten. But now that science was available through the newcomer from Earth, the rockets could be equipped and taken up to one of the six flying stars. The Earthman could study the rocket, determine what was needed in the way of supplies. Then it could be outfitted for the long voyage. An alternative was the Terran's vessel. Perhaps he might invite him to come along in it. The huge gateway to Mapfarity's castle interrupted his thoughts. Chapter 8 He halted the Renault, told Archambaud to find the giant's servant and have him feed their vehicle, rub its legs down with liniment, and examine the hooves for defective shoes. Archambaud was glad to look up Mapfabishin, the giant's servant because he had not seen him for a long time. The little Sassassaror had been an active member of the Eggstealers' Guild until the night three years ago when he had tried to creep into Mapfarity's strongroom. The crafty guildsmen had avoided the giant's traps, and there found the two geese squatting upon their bed of minerals. These fabulous geese made no sound when he picked them up with lead-lined gloves and put them in his bag, also lined with lead leaf. They were not even aware of him. Laboratory-bred, retort-shaped, their protoplasm a blend of silicon carbon, unconscious even that they lived. They munched upon lead and other elements, ruminated, gestated, transmuted, and every month, regular as the clockwork march of stars or whirl of electrons, each laid an octagonal egg of pure gold. Mapfabishin had trodden softly from the strong-room and thought himself safe. And then, amazingly, frighteningly, and totally unethically from his viewpoint, the geese had begun to honk loudly. He had run, but not fast enough. The giant had come stumbling from his bed in response to the wild clamor and had caught him. And, according to the contract drawn up between the Guild of Egg-Stealers and the League of Giants, a guildsman seized within the precincts of a castle must serve the goose's owner for two years. Mapfabishin had been greedy. He had tried to take both geese. Therefore, he must wait upon the giant for a double term. Afterwards, he found out how he'd been trapped. The egg-layers themselves hadn't been honking. Mouthless, they were utterly incapable of that. Mapfarity had fastened a so-called goose-tracker to the strong-room's doorway. This device clicked loudly whenever a goose was nearby. It could smell out one even through a lead-leaf-lined bag. When Mapfabishin passed underneath it, its clicks woke up a small skin beside it. The skin, mostly lung-sac and voice-organs, honked its warning, and the dwarf Mapfabishin began his servitude to the giant Mapfarity. Rastanak knew the story. He also knew that Mapfarity had infected the fellow with the philosophy of violence, and that he was now a good member of his underground. He was eager to tell him his servitor days were over, that he could now take his place in their band as an equal, subject, of course, to Rastanak's order. Mapfabishin was stretched out upon the floor and snoring a sour breath. A gray-haired man was slumped on a nearby table, his head turned to one side, exhibited the same slack-jawed look that the Sassassaror had, and he flung the ill-smelling gauntlet of his breath at the visitors. He held an empty bottle in one loose hand. 
Two other bottles lay on the stone floor, one shattered. Beside the bottles lay the men's skins. Rastanak wondered why they had not crawled to the hall tree and hung themselves up. What ails them? And what is that smell? said Mapfarity. I don't know, replied Archambaud. But I know the visitor. He is Father Jules, priest of the Guild of Egg-Stealers. Rastanak raised his queer, bracket-shaped eyebrows, picked up a bottle in which there remained a slight residue, and drank. Mon Dieu! It is the sacrament wine! he cried. Mapfarity said, Why would they be drinking that? I don't know. Wake Mapfabashine up, but let the good father sleep. He seems tired after his spiritual labors, and doubtless deserves a rest. Doused with a bucket of cold water, the little Sassassaror staggered to his feet. Seeing Archambaud, he embraced him. Ah, Archambaud, old baby abductor, my sweet goosebagger, my ears tingle to see you again. They did. Red and blue sparks flew off his ear feathers. What is the meaning of this? sternly interrupted Mapfarity. He pointed at the dirt swept into the corners. Mapfabashin drew himself up to his full dignity, which wasn't much. Good Father Jules was making his circuits, he said. You know, he travels around the country and hears confession and sings mass for us poor egg-stealers who have been unlucky enough to fall into the clutches of some rich and greedy and antisocial giant who is too stingy to hire servants, but captures them instead, and who won't allow us to leave the premises until our servitude is over. Cut it, thundered Mapfarity. I can't stand around all day listening to the likes of you. My feet hurt too much. Anyway, you know I've allowed you to go into town every weekend. Why don't you see a priest then? Mapfabashin said, You know very well the closest town is ten kilometers away, and it's full of pantheists. There's not a priest to be found there. Rastanak groaned inwardly. Always it was thus. You could never hurry these people or get them to regard anything seriously. Take the case they were wasting their breath on now. Everybody knew the church had been outlawed a long time ago because it opposed the use of the skins and certain other practices that went along with it. So no sooner had that been done than the Sassassarors, anxious to establish their check-and-balance system, had made arrangements through the Minister of Ill-Will to give the Church unofficial legal recognizance. Then, though the Aborigines had belonged to that pantheistical organization known as the Sons of Good and Old Mother Nature, they had all joined the Church of the Terrans. They operated under the theory that the best way to make an institution innocuous was for everybody to sign up for it. Never persecute. That makes it thrive. Much to the Church's chagrin, the theory worked. How can you fight an enemy who insists on joining you, and who will also agree to everything you teach him, and then still worship at the other service? Supposedly driven underground, the Church counted almost every landsman among its supporters from the kings down. Every now and then a priest would forget to wear his skin out of doors and be arrested, then released later in an official jailbreak. Those who refused to cooperate were forcibly kidnapped, taken to another town, and there let loose. Nor did it do the priest any good to proclaim boldly who he was. Everybody pretended not to know he was a fugitive from justice. They insisted on calling him by his official pseudonym. However, 
few priests were such martyrs. Generations of skin-wearing had sapped the ecclesiastical vigor. The thing that puzzled Rastanac about Father Jules was the sacrament wine. Neither he nor anybody else in Le Bopfay, as far as he knew, had ever tasted the liquid outside of the ceremony. Indeed, except for certain of the priests, nobody even knew how to make wine. He shook the priest awake, said, What's the matter, Father? Father Jules burst into tears. Ah, my boy, you have caught me in my sin. I am a drunkard. Everybody looked blank. What does that word drunkard mean? It means a man who's damned enough to fill his skin with alcohol, my boy. Fill it until he's no longer a man, but a beast. Alcohol? What is that? The stuff that's in the wine, my boy. You, you don't know what I'm talking about, because the knowledge was long ago forbidden except to us of the cloth. Cloth, he says. Bah. We go around like everybody, naked, except for these extradermal monstrosities which reveal rather than conceal, which not only serve us as clothing, but as mentors, parents, censors, interpreters, and, yes, even as priests. Where's a bottle that's not empty? I'm thirsty. Rastanac stuck to the subject. Why was the making of this alcohol forbidden? How should I know? said Father Jules. I'm, I'm old, but not so ancient that I came with the six flying stars. Where's that bottle? Rastanac was not offended by his crossness. Priests were notorious for being the most ill-tempered, obstreperous, and unstable of men. They were not at all like the clerics of earth, whom everybody knew from legend had been sweet-tempered, meek, humble, and obedient to authority. But on Le Bobfay, these men of the church had reason to be out of sorts. Everybody attended Mass, paid their tithes, went to confession, and did not fall asleep during sermons. Everybody believed what the priests told them, and were as good as it was possible for human beings to be. So the priests had no real incentive to work, no evil to fight. Then why the prohibition against alcohol? Sacre bleu, groaned Father Jules. Drink as much as I did last night and you'll find out. Never again, I say. Ah, there's another bottle, hidden by a providential fate under my traveling robe. Where's that corkscrew? Father Jules swallowed half of the bottle, smacked his lips, picked up his skin from the floor, brushed off the dirt, and said, I must be going, my sons. I've a noon appointment with the bishop, and I've a good twelve kilometers to travel. Perhaps one of you gentlemen has a car? Rastanac shook his head and said he was sorry, but their car was tired and had besides thrown a shoe. Father Jules shrugged philosophically, put on his skin, and reached out again for the bottle. Rastanac said, Sorry, Father, I'm keeping this bottle. For what? asked Father Jules. Never mind. Say I'm keeping you from temptation. Bless you, my son, and may you have a big enough hangover to show you the wickedness of your ways. Smiling, Rastanac watched the father walk out. He was not disappointed. The priest had no sooner reached the huge door than his skin fell off and lay motionless upon the stone. Ah, breathed Rastanac. The same thing happened to Mapfabashin when he put his on. There must be something about the wine that deadens the skins, makes them fall off. After the Padre had left, Rastanac handed the bottle to Mapfarity. 
We're dedicated to breaking the law most illegally, brother. So I'm asking you to analyze this wine and find out how to make it. Why not ask Father Jules? Because priests are pledged never to reveal the secret. That was one of the original agreements whereby the church was allowed to remain on Le Bopfe. Or at least that's what my parish priest told me. He said it was a good thing, as it removed an evil from man's temptation. He never did say why it was so evil. Maybe he didn't know. That doesn't matter. What does matter is that the Church has inadvertently given us a weapon whereby we may free man from his bondage to the skins, and it has also given itself once again a chance to be really persecuted and to flourish on the blood of its martyrs. Blood? said Lucienne, licking her lips. The churchmen drink blood? Rastanac did not explain. He could be wrong. If so, he'd feel less like a fool if they didn't know what he thought. Meanwhile, there were the first steps to be taken for the unskinning of an entire planet. Chapter 9 Later that day, the mucketeers surrounded the castle, but they made no effort to storm it. The following day, one of them knocked on the huge front door and presented Mapfarity with a summons requiring them to surrender. The giant laughed, put the document in his mouth, and ate it. The server fainted and had to be revived with a bucket of cold water before he could stagger back to report this tradition-shattering reception. Rastanac set up his underground so it could be expanded in a hurry. He didn't worry about the blockade because, as was well known, giant's castles had all sorts of subterranean tunnels and secret exits. He contacted a small number of priests who were willing to work for him. These were congenial rebels who became quite enthusiastic when he told them their activities would result in a fierce persecution of the church. The majority, however, clung to their skins and said they would have nothing to do with this extra-dermal-less devil. They took pride and comfort in that term. The vulgar phrase for the man who refused to wear his skin was devil, and by law and logic the church could not be associated with a devil. As everybody knew, the priests have always been on the sides of the angels. Meanwhile, the devil's band slipped out of the tunnels and made raids. Their targets were giants' castles and government treasuries. Their loot, the geese. So many raids did they make that the president of the League of Giants and the business agent for the Guild of Egg Stealers came to plead with them and remained to denounce. Rastanac was delighted with their complaints and, after listening for a while, threw them out. Rastanac had, like all other skin-wearers, always accepted the monetary system as a thing of reason and steady balance, but without his skin he was able to think objectively and saw its weaknesses. For some cause, buried far in history, the giants had always had control of the means for making the hexagonal golden coins called oofs. But the kings, wishing to get control of the golden eggs, had set up that elite branch of the guild which specialized in abducting the half-living geese. Whenever a thief was successful, he turned the goose over to the king. The monarch, in turn, sent a note to the robbed giant informing him that the government intended to keep the goose to make its own currency. But even though the giant was making counterfeit geese, the king, in his generosity, would ship to the giant one out of every thirty eggs laid by the kidnappee. The note was a polite and well-recognized lie. 
The Giants made the only genuine gold egg-laying geese on the planet because the Giants League alone knew the secret. And the king gave back one-thirtieth of his loot so the Giant could accumulate enough money to buy the materials to create another goose, which would possibly be stolen later on. Rastanac, by his illegal rape of geese, was making money scarce. Peasants were hanging on to their produce and waiting to sell until prices were at their highest. The government, merchants, the league, the guild, all saw themselves impoverished. Furthermore, the amphibs, taking note of the situation, were making raids of their own and blaming them on Rastanac. He did not care. He was intent on trying to find a way to reach Catapromanoin and rescue the Earthman so he could take off in the spaceship floating in the harbor. But he knew he would have to take things slowly, to scout out the land and plan accordingly. Furthermore, Map Faraday had made him promise he would do his best to set up the landsmen so they would be able to resist the waterfolk when the day for war came. Rastanac made his biggest raid when he and his band stole one moonless night into the capital itself to rob the big goose house, only an egg's throw away from the palace and the ministry of ill will. They put the goose house guards to sleep with little arrows smeared with dream snake venom, filled their lead leaf lined bags with gold eggs, and sneaked out the back door. As they left, Rastanac saw a cloaked figure slinking from the back door of the ministry. Seized with intuition, he tackled the figure. It was an amphib changeling. Rastanac struck the amphib with a venomous arrow before the water human could cry out or stab back. Mapfarity grabbed up the limp amphib, and they raced for the safety of the castle. They questioned the amphib, Pierre Pussypremnus, in the castle. At first, silent, he later began to talk freely when Mapfarity got a heavy skin from his flesh forge and put it on the fellow. It was a skin modeled after those worn by the water people, but it differed in that the giant could control through another skin the powerful neural shocks. After a few shocks, Pierre admitted he was the foster son of the amphibian king, and that, incidentally, Lucienne was his foster sister. He further stated he was a messenger between the amphib king and the Cesar's ill-will minister. More shocks extracted the fact that the minister of ill-will, Overpin, was an amphib changeling, who was passing himself off as a born landsman. Not only that, the human hostages among the amphibs were about to stage a carefully planned revolt against the born amphibs. It would kill off about half of them. The rest would then be brought under control of the master skin. When the two stepped from the lab, they were attacked by Lucienne, knife in hand. She gashed Rastanac in the arm before he knocked her out with an uppercut. Later, while Matt Faraday applied a little jelly-like creature called a scar jester to the wound, Rastanac complained. I don't know if I can endure much more of this. I thought the way of violence would not be hard to follow because I hated the skins and the amphibs so much. But it is easier to attack a faceless hypothetical enemy or torture him than the individual enemy. Uh, much easier. My brother, boomed the giant. If you continue to dwell upon the philosophical implications of your actions, you will end up as helpless and confused as the leg-counting centipede. Better not think. Warriors are not supposed to think. They lose their keen fighting edge when they think. And you need all of that now. I would suppose that thought would sharpen them. When issues are simple, yes. 
But you must remember that the system on this planet is anything but uncomplicated. It was set up to confuse, to keep one always off balance. Just try to keep one thing in mind. The skins are far more of an impediment to man than they are a help. Also, that if the skins don't come off, the amphibs will soon be cutting our throats. The only way to save ourselves is to kill them first, right? I suppose so, said Rastanak. He stooped and put his hands under the unconscious Lucienne's armpits. Help me put her in a room. We'll keep her locked up until she cools off. Then we'll use her to guide us when we get to Catapromenoin. Which reminds me, how many gallons of the wine have you made so far? Chapter 10 A week later, Rastanak summoned Lucienne. She came in, frowning, and with her lower lip protruding in a pretty pout. He said, Day after tomorrow is the day on which the new kings are crowned, isn't it? Tonelessly, she said, Supposedly. Actually, the present kings will be crowned again. Rastanak smiled. I know. Peculiar, isn't it, how the people always vote the same kings back into power? However, that isn't what I'm getting at. If I remember correctly, the Amphibs give their king exotic and amusing gifts on Coronation Day. What do you think would happen if I took a big shipload of bottles of wine and passed it out among the population just before the Amphibs begin their surprise massacre? Lucienne had seen Mapfarity and Rastanak experimenting with the wine, and she had been frightened by the results. Nevertheless, she made a brave attempt to hide her fear now. She spit at him and said, You mud-footed fool, there are priests who will know what it is. They will be in the coronation crowd. Ah, not so. In the first place, you amphibs are almost entirely aggressive pantheists. You have only a few priests, and you will now pay for that omission of wine-tasters. Second, Mapfarity's concoction tastes not at all vinous, and is twice as strong. She spat at him again, and spun on her heel, and walked out. That night Rastanak's band and Lucienne went through a tunnel which brought them up through a hollow tree about two miles west of the castle. There they hopped into the Renault, which had been kept in a camouflaged garage, and drove to the little port of Marek. Archambaud had paved their way here with golden eggs, and a sloop was waiting for them. Rastanak took the boat's wheel. Lucienne stood beside him, ready to answer the challenge of any amphib patrol that tried to stop them. As the amphib king's foster daughter, she could get the boat through to the amphib island without any trouble at all. Archambaud stood behind her, a knife under his cloak, to make sure she did not try to betray them. Lucienne had sworn she could be trusted. Rastanak had answered that he was sure she could be too, as long as the knife point pricked her in the back to remind her. Nobody stopped them. An hour before dawn they anchored in the harbor of Catapromenoin. Lucienne was tied hand and foot inside the cabin. Before Rastanak could scratch her with dream-snake venom, she pleaded, You could not do this to me, Jean-Jacques, if you loved me. Who said anything about loving you? Well, I like that. You said so, you cheat. Oh, then. Well, Lucienne, you've had enough experience to know that such protestations of tenderness and affection are only inevitable accompaniments of the moment's passion. For the first time he had known her, he saw Lucienne's lower lip tremble and tears come in her eyes. 
Do you mean you were only using me? She sobbed. You forget I had good reason to think you were just using me. Remember, you're an amphib, Lucienne. Your people can't be trusted. You blood-drinkers are as savage as the little sea-monsters you leave in human cradles. Jean-Jacques, take me with you. I'll do anything you say. I'll even cut my foster-father's throat for you. He laughed. Unheeding, she swept on. I want to be with you, Jean-Jacques. Look, with me to guide you in my homeland, with my prestige as the Amphib King's daughter, you can become king yourself after the rebellion. I'd get rid of the Amphib King for you, so there'll be nobody in your way." She felt no more guilt than a tigress. She was naive and terrible, innocent and disgusting. No thanks, Lucienne. He scratched her with a dream-snake needle. As her eyes closed, he said, You don't understand. All I want to do is voyage to the stars. Being king means nothing to me. The only person I'd trade places with would be the Earthman the Amphibs hold prisoner. He left her sleeping in the locked cabin. Noon found them loafing on the great square in front of the palace of the two kings of the sea and the islands. All were disguised as waterfolk. Before they'd left the castle, they had grafted webs between their fingers and toes, just as Amphib changelings who weren't born with them did and they wore the special amphib skins that Mapfarity had grown in his flesh-forge. These were able to tune in on the amphibs' wavelengths, but they lacked their shock mechanism. Rastanak had to locate the Earthman, rescue him, and get him to the spaceship that lay anchored between two wharves, its sharp nose pointing outwards. A wooden bridge had been built from one of the wharves to a place halfway up its towering side. Rastanak could not make out any breaks in the smooth metal that would indicate a port, but reason told him there must be some sort of entrance to the ship at that point. A guard of twenty amphibs repulsed any attempt on the crowd's part to get on the bridge. Rastanak had contacted the harbormaster and made arrangements for workmen to unload his cargo of wine. His free-handedness with the gold eggs got him immediate service even on this general holiday. Once in the square, he and his men uncrated the wine, but left the two heavy chests on the wagon, which was hitched to a powerful little six-legged jeep. They stacked the bottles of wine in a huge pile while the curious crowd in the square encircled them to watch. Rastanak then stood on a chest to survey the scene, so that he might best judge the time to start. There were perhaps seven or eight thousand of all three races there. The Sassassorors, the Amphibs, the Humans, with an unequal portioning of each. Rastanak, looking for just such a thing, noticed that every non-human Amphib had at least two humans tagging at his heels. It would take two humans to handle an Amphib or Sassassoror. The Amphibs stood upon their seal-like hind flippers, at least six and a half feet tall, and weighed about three hundred pounds. The giant Sassassorors, being fish-eaters, had reached the same enormous height as Mapfarity. The giants were in the minority, as the Amphibs had always preferred stealing human babies from the Terrans. These were marked for death as much as the Amphibs. Rastanak watched for signs of uneasiness or hostility between the three groups. Soon he saw the signs. They were not plentiful, but they were enough to indicate an uneasy undercurrent. Three times the guards had to intervene to break up quarrels. The humans eyed the non-human quarrelers, but made no move to help their amphib fellows against the giants. 
Not only that, they took them aside afterwards and seemed to be reprimanding them. Evidently the order was that everyone was to be on his behavior until the time of revolt. Rastanak glanced at the great tower clock. It's an hour before the ceremonies begin, he said to his men. Let's go. Chapter 11 Mapfarity, who had been loitering in the crowd some distance away, caught Archibald's signal and slowly, as befit a giant whose feet hurt, limped towards them. He stopped, scrutinized the pile of bottles, then in his lion's roar at the bottom of a well voice said, Say, what's in these bottles? Rastanak shouted back, A drink which the new kings will enjoy very much. What's that? replied Mapfarity. Seawater? The crowd laughed. No, it's not water, Rastanak said. As anybody but a lumbering giant should know, it is a delicious drink that brings a rare ecstasy upon the drinker. I got the formula for it from an old witch who lives on the shores of far-off Abfelab Vita Nayu. He told me it had been in his family since the coming of man to Lebopfe. He parted with the formula on condition I make it only for the kings. Will only their majesties get to taste this exquisite drink? bellowed Mapfarity. That depends upon whether it pleases their majesties to give some to their subjects to celebrate the results of the elections. Archambaud, also planted in the crowd, shrilled, I suppose if they do, the big paunched amphibs and giants will get twice as much as us humans. They always do, it seems. There was a mutter from the crowd, approbation from the amphibs, protest from the others. That will make no difference, said Rastanak, smiling. The fascinating thing about this is that an amphib can drink no more than a human. That may be why the old man who revealed his secret to me called the drink Old Equalizer. Ah, you're skinless, scoffed Mapfarity, throwing the most deadly insult known. I can outdrink, outeat, and outswim any human here. Here, amphib, give me a bottle, and we'll see if I'm bragging. An amphib captain pushed himself through the throng, waddling clumsily on his flippers like an upright seal. No, you don't, he barked. Those bottles are intended for the kings. No commoner touches them, least of all a human and a giant. Rastanak mentally hugged himself. He couldn't have planned a better intervention himself. Why can't I? he replied. Until I make an official presentation, these bottles are mine, not the kings. I'll do what I want with them. Yeah, said the Amphibs. That's telling him. The Amphibs' big brown eyes narrowed and his animal-like face wrinkled, but he couldn't think of a retort. Rastanak at once handed a bottle apiece to each of his comrades. They uncorked and drank and then assumed an ecstatic expression which was a tribute to their acting, for these three bottles held only fruit juice. Look here, Captain, said Rastanak. Why don't you try a swig yourself? Go ahead, there's plenty and I'm sure their majesties would be pleased to contribute some of it on this joyous occasion. Besides, I can always make more for the kings. As a matter of fact, he added, winking, I expect to get a pension from the courts as the king's old equalizer-maker. The crowd laughed. The amphib, afraid of losing face, took the bottle, which contained wine rather than fruit juice. After a few long swallows, the amphib's eyes became red, and a silly grin curved his thin, black-edged lips. Finally, in a thickening voice, he asked for another bottle. 
Rastanak, in a sudden burst of generosity, not only gave him one, but began passing out bottles to the many eager, reaching hands. Mapfarity and the two egg-thieves helped him. In a short time the pile of bottles had dwindled to a fourth of its former height. When a mixed group of guards strode up and demanded to know what the commotion was about, Rastanak gave them some bottles. Meanwhile Archambaud slipped off into the mob. He lurched into an amphib, said something nasty about his ancestors, and pulled his knife. When the amphib lunged for the little man, Archambaud jumped back and shoved a human amphib into the giant flipper-like arms. Within a minute the square had erupted into a fighting mob. Staggering, red-eyed, slur-tongued, their long-repressed hostility against each other released by the liquor which their bodies were unaccustomed to, human, sassassaror, and amphib fell to with the utmost will, slashing, slugging, fighting with everything they had. None of them noticed that everyone who had drunk from the bottles had lost his skin. The skins had fallen off one by one and lay motionless on the pavement where they were kicked or stepped upon. Not one skin tried to crawl back to its owner because they were all nerve-numbed by the wine. Rastanak, seated behind the wheel of the jeep, began driving as best he could through the battling mob. After frequent stops he halted before the broad marble steps that ran like a stairway to heaven up and up before it ended on the porpoise porch of the palace. He and his gang were about to take the two heavy chests off the wagon when they were transfixed by a scene before them. A score of dead humans and amphibs lay on the steps, evidence of the fierce struggle that had taken place between the guards of the two monarchs. Evidently the king had heard of the riot and hastened outside. There the amphib changeling king had apparently realized that the rebellion was way ahead of schedule, but he had attacked the amphib king anyway. And he had won for his guardsmen held the struggling flipper-footed amphib ruler down while two others bent his head back over a step. The changeling king himself, still clad in the coronation robes, was about to draw his long ceremonial knife across the exposed and palpitating throat of the amphib king. This in itself was enough to freeze the onlookers, but the sight of Lucienne running up the stairway toward the rulers added to their paralysis. She had a knife in her hand and was holding it high as she ran toward her foster father, the Amphib King. Mapfarity groaned, but Rastanak said, It doesn't matter that she has escaped. We'll go ahead with our original plan. They began unloading the chests while Rastanak kept an eye on Lucienne. He saw her run up, stop, say a few words to the Amphib King, then kneel and stab him, burying the knife in his jugular vein. Then, before anybody could stop her, she had applied her mouth to the cut in his neck. The human king kicked her in the ribs and sent her rolling down the steps. Rastanak saw correctly that it was not her murderous deed that caused his reaction. It was because she had dared to commit it without his permission, and had also drunk the royal blood first. He further noted with grim satisfaction that when Lucien recovered from the blow and ran back up to talk to the king, he ignored her. She pointed at the group around the wagon, but he dismissed her with a wave of his hand. He was too busy gloating over his vanquished rival lying at his feet. The plotters hoisted the two chests and staggered up the steps. The king passed them as he went down with no more than a curious glance. Gifts had been coming up those steps all day for the king, so he undoubtedly thought of them only as more gifts. So Rastanak and his men walked past the knives of the guards as if they had nothing to fear. Lucienne stood alone at the top of the steps. 
She was in a half-crouch, knife ready. I'll kill the king and I'll drink from his throat, she cried hoarsely. No man kicks me except for love. Has he forgotten that I am the foster daughter of the Amphib King? Rastanac felt revulsion, but he had learned by now that those who deal in violence and rebellion must march with strange steppers. Bear a hand here, he said, ignoring her threat. Meekly she grabbed hold of a chest's corner. To his further questioning she replied that the Earthman who had landed in the ship was held in a suite of rooms in the West Wing. Their trip thereafter was fast and direct. Unopposed they carted the chests to the huge room where the master skin was kept. There they found ten frantic biotechnicians excitedly trying to determine why the great extraderm, the master skin through which all individual skins were controlled, was not broadcasting properly. They had no way as yet of knowing that it was operating perfectly, but that the little skins upon the amphibs and their hostage humans were not shocking them into submission, because they were lying in a wine-stupor on the ground. No one had told them that the skins, which fed off the bloodstream of their hosts, had become anesthetized from the alcohol and failed any longer to react to their master's skin. That, of course, applied only to those skins in the square that were drunk from the wine. Elsewhere, all over the kingdom, amphibs writhed in agony, and Sassasaurs and Terrans were taking advantage of their helplessness to cut their throats. But not here, where the crux of the matter was. Chapter 12 The landsmen rushed the techs and pushed them into the great chemical vat in which the twenty-five-hundred-foot square master's skin floated. Then they uncrated the lead-leaf-lined bags filled with stolen geese and emptied them into the nutrient fluid. According to Mapfarity's calculations, the radioactivity from the silicon-carbon geese should kill the big skin within a few days. When the new one was grown, that too would die, unless the amphib guessed what was wrong and located the geese on the bottom of the ten-foot-deep tank, they would not be able to stop the process. That did not seem likely. In either case, it was necessary that the master skin be put out of temporary commission, at least so the amphibs over the kingdom could have a fighting chance. Mapfarity plunged a hollow harpoon into the isle of floating protoplasm and through a tube connected to that poured into the skin three gallons of the dream-snake venom. That was enough to knock it out for an hour or two. Meanwhile, if the amphibs had any sense at all, they'd have rid themselves of their extraderms. They left the lab and entered the west wing. As they trotted up the long winding corridors, Lucienne said, Jean-Jacques, what do you plan on doing now? Will you try to make yourself king of the Terrans and fight us amphibs? When he said nothing, she went on, Why don't you kill the amphib changeling king and take over here? I could help you do that. You could then have all of the Bob Fay in your power. He shot her a look of contempt and cried, Lucienne, can't you get it through that thick little head of yours that everything I've done has been done so that I can win one goal, reaching the flying stars? If I can get the Earthman to his ship, I'll leave with him and not set foot again for years on this planet, maybe never again. She looked stricken. But what about the war here? she asked. There are a few good men among the land folk who are capable of leading in wartime. It will take strong men, and there are very few like me, I admit, but, uh-oh, the opposition. He broke off at sight of the six guards who stood before the Earthman's suite. 
Lucienne helped, and within a minute they had slain three and chased away the others. Then they burst through the door, and Rastanac received another shock. The occupant of the apartment was a tiny and exquisitely formed redhead with large blue eyes and very unmasculine curves. I thought you said Earth Man, protested Rastanac to the giant who came lumbering along behind them. Oh, I, I use that in the generic sense, Map Faraday replied. You didn't expect me to pay attention to sex, did you? I'm, I'm not interested in the gender of you humans, you know. There was no time for reproach. Rastanac tried to explain to the Earthwoman who he was, but she did not understand him. However, she did seem to catch on to what he wanted and seemed reassured by his gestures. She picked up a large book from a table and, hugging it to her small, high, and rounded bosom, went with him out the door. They raced from the palace and descended onto the square. Here they found the surviving amphibs clustered into a solid phalanx and fighting bloody step by step toward the street that led to the harbor. Rastanac's little group skirted the battle and started down the steep avenue toward the harbor. Halfway down he glanced back and saw that nobody as yet was paying any attention to them, nor was there anybody on the street to bother them, though the pavement was strewn with skins and bodies. Apparently those who'd lived through the first savage melee had gone to the square. They ran onto the wharf. The Earthwoman motioned to Rastanac that she knew how to open the spaceship, but the Amphibs didn't. Moreover, if they did get in, they wouldn't know how to operate it. She had the directions for doing so in the book hugged so desperately to her chest. Rastanac surmised she hadn't told the Amphibs about that. Apparently they hadn't as yet tried to torture the information from her. Therefore, her telling him about the book indicated she trusted him. Lucienne said, Now what, Jean-Jacques? Are you still going to abandon this planet? Of course, he snapped. Will you take me with you? He had spent most of his life under the tutelage of his skin, which ensured that others would know when he was lying. It did not come easy to hide his true feelings, so a habit of a lifetime won out. I will not take you, he said. In the first place, though you may have some admirable virtues, I've failed to detect one. In the second place, I could not stand your blood-drinking nor your murderous and totally immoral ways. But, Jean-Jacques, I will give them up for you. Can the shark stop eating fish? You would leave Lucienne, who loves you as no earthwoman could, and go with that, that pale little doll? I could break with my hands. Be quiet, he said. I have dreamed of this moment all my life. Nothing can stop me now. They were on the wharf beside the bridge that ran up the smooth side of the starship. The guard was no longer there, though bodies showed that there had been reluctance on the part of some to leave. They let the earthwoman precede them up the bridge. Lucienne suddenly ran ahead of him, crying, If you won't have me, you won't have her either, nor the stars. Her knife sank twice into the earthwoman's back. Then, before anybody could reach her, she had leaped off the bridge and into the harbor. Rastanac knelt beside the earthwoman. She held out the book to him. Then she died. He caught the volume before it struck the wharf. My God, my God! moaned Rastanac, stunned with grief and shock and sorrow. Sorrow for the woman and shock at the loss of the ship and the end of his plans for freedom. Map Faraday ran up then and took the book from his nerveless hand. 
She indicated that this is a manual for running the ship, he said. All is not lost. It'll be in a language we don't know, Rastanak whispered. Archambod came running up, shrilled, The amphibs have broken through and are coming down the street. Let's get to our boat before the whole bloodthirsty mob gets here. Matt Faraday paid him no attention. He thumbed through the book, then reached down and lifted Rastanak from his crouching position by the corpse. There's hope yet, Jean-Jacques, he growled. This book is printed with the same characters as those I saw in a book owned by a priest I knew. He said it was in Hebrew, and that it was the holy book in the original Earth language. This woman must be a citizen of the Republic of Israel, which, I understand, was rising to be a great power on Earth at the time you French left. Perhaps the language of this woman has changed somewhat from the original tongue, but I don't think the alphabet has. I'll bet that if we get this to a priest who can read it, there are only a few left, he can translate it well enough for us to figure out everything. They walked to the wharf's end and climbed down a ladder to a platform where a dory was tied up. As they rowed out to their sloop, Mapfarity said, Look, Rastanak, things aren't as bad as they seem. If you haven't the ship, nobody else has either. And you alone have the key to its entrance and operation. For that you can thank the Church, which has preserved the ancient wisdom for emergencies which it couldn't foresee such as this, just as it kept the secret of wine, which will eventually be the greatest means for delivering our people from their bondage to the skins, and thus enabling them to fight the amphibs back instead of being slaughtered. Meanwhile we've a battle to wage. You will have to lead it. Nobody else but the skinless devil has the prestige to make the people gather around him. Once we accuse the minister of ill-will of treason and jail him without an official breaker to release him, we'll demand a general election. You'll be made king of the Sassassaror, I of the Terrans. That is inevitable, for we are the only skinless men and therefore irresistible. After the war is won, we'll leave for the stars. How do you like that? Rastanak smiled. It was weak, but it was a smile. His bracket-shaped eyebrows bent into their old sign of determination. "'You are right,' he replied. "'I have given it much thought. A man has no right to leave his native land until he's settled his problems here. Even if Lucienne hadn't killed the Earthwoman and I had sailed away, my conscience wouldn't have given me any rest. I would have known I had abandoned the fight in the middle of it. But now that I have stripped myself of my skin—' which was a substitute for my conscience, and now that I am being forced to develop my own inward conscience, I must admit that immediate flight to the stars would have been the wrong thing." The pleased and happy Mapfarity said, "'And you must also admit, Rastanak, that things so far have had a way of working out for the best. Even Lucienne, evil as she was, has helped towards the general good by keeping you on this planet. And the Church, though it has released once again the old evil of alcohol, has done more good by so doing than—" But here Rastanak interrupted to say he did not believe in this particular school of thought. And so, while the howls of savage warriors drifted from the wharves, while the structure of their world crashed around them, they plunged into that most violent and circular of all whirlpools, the discussion philosophical. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Will. Hi, I'm Trish. We're going to talk about Rastanak the Devil by Philip Jose Farmer. This is first published in Fantastic Universe, May 1954. There are no internal illustrations, um, and usually the packaging comes with 
if the if you're looking at the audiobook on Livervox or somewhere else, some other app, they just put the cover art on there, and I'm pretty sure that's not related. Um, I did find a French, I think it was a French publication, which I put in the audiobook, but I'm pretty sure that's not related either. It's got a, like a, I don't know, maybe it is. There's a guy with a big long mustache looking up at this, at a lion statue, or looking down at a lion statue, and there's a spirit coming out of the lion. <laughs> and I don't think any of that happens in the story unless it's all metaphorical. It's a very metaphorical story, I think. Uh, or is it is it is it a particular satire of something? I, I it's a it's it does a general feel like satire. an elaborate joke, whatever yeah. it is. Uh, uh, I mean, it is a shame that this has not been illustrated, right? I yes. feel like this would make a great cartoon. It's it's certainly cartoonish, especially with you know Fords and uh, Renaults with feet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> my he says my Renault is tired. <laughs> have to rub down its leg. <laughs> um, yeah, there were some interesting imaginative things in this, but it it felt this is not a book I would recommend to anyone except students of the genre. I don't. It's 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 uh. It's not a good entry point, perhaps, is what you're no, saying. Definitely not a good entry point. It um it has. Its characters are not particularly likable, and it ha- does explore a few interesting ideas, but as you said, in a almost uh, joking way, but not really interesting enough to be called satirical either. It's um, well, I, I, it's I, an odd, odd. I think it is very much a satire of a certain thing, but I'm pretty sure I'm not familiar with that thing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yeah, a, like a little piece of history. Like he's playing a big joke on some other writer that we yes. don't know about. Yes, something. and I think it would be helpful to have read that book that he had just read before he wrote this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, my sense is that, well, I know for a fact that uh, Phil was really into 19th century French adventure literature. Clearly. Mm. Um, and, which I feel like is is what's going on here. Um, would that be why he made the settlers uh, French origin? Because in the in the uh, <clears throat> audiobook that I listened to, um, it, it sounded as though he just threw in them being French origin just to make it a little more exotic. Than, it's uh, the Three Musketeers. Uh, I, I, I think it's uh, that's that it's definitely the period that he's he's making fun of mm-hmm. um, uh, or having fun with. It's kind of interesting. Um, but the. the I don't think I don't think it's an accident that it's it's French. I think that that's necessary for the kind of playful joking that he's doing, and it's more exploration than joking. I think because uh, there's some stuff here that is directly satirizing particular institutions. But I'm not an expert on the French Revolution, not close i i mean i know something about it but i i didn't study it at university i haven't read any major books on it you know i (laughs) i'm not an expert on the french revolution but um it's also pre-revolutionary uh france in uh, this planet right um so we've got the three institutions uh and he's he's 
he's making political points, but it's also non-political points. Um, but the ending gives it away. I'll just read the last uh, three paragraphs here. You're right, he replied. I have given it much thought. A man has no right to leave his native land until he's settled his problems here. Um, bad news for both of you. <laughs> even in Luc- <laughs> even if Lucine had hadn't killed the Earth Woman and I had sailed away, my conscience wouldn't have given me any rest. I would have known I had aban I had abandoned the fight in the middle of it. But now that I have stripped myself of my skin, and skin is always capitalized, which was a substitute for a conscience. He's just telling you now. And now that I am being forced to develop my own inward conscience, I must admit that immediate flight to the stars would have been the wrong thing. The pleased and happy Mapferity said, and you must admit, Rastanak, that things so far have had a way of working out for the best. So that's a direct line. Candide. Yes, directly from Candide, right? Even Lucine, evil as she was, has helped towards the general good by keeping you on this planet. And the church though it has released once again the old evil of alcohol, has done more good by doing so than... But here Rastanak interrupted to say he did not believe in this particular school of thought. And so, while the howls of savage warriors derifted from the wharves, while the structure of their world crashed around them, they plunged into the most violent and circular of all whirlpools, the discussion philosophical... So I think that's actually where we are, right? We're in the discussion philosophical <laughs> section because he, there are these events presented to us and he's very front-loading the the info dump. It's amazingly dense info dump. I think this would be oh, very oh, rewarding. But yeah, it definitely starts out with a lot of info dumping and then just keeps dropping it. It does. It does. And I, it's almost like he said, this is a novel, but I can't sell it as a novel. So I'm going to just pump it all into this short little thing. Um, it just there's didn't a, get rewritten, did it? There's aspect of it where... Uh... Uh, Phil was not happy with this edit of it. Mm. Um, uh, and this comes to me from, uh, Christopher Paul Carey, who's, you know, one of the, like, Philip Jose Farmer, um, like, wizards or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, is that, uh, uh, like, something happened in between Phil's manuscript and, uh, what was published, uh, that, um, uh, Phil just, like, never really like got over with, with regard to this story. Mm-hmm. Um, and that may have something to do with, uh, the, the copyright never being renewed on it. Although I think the, uh, Philip Jose farmer family trust takes the view that this is not in the public domain. Although they uh, <laughs> are not, uh, Too bad. Doing any- yeah, yeah, no, right. They haven't actually done anything to, uh, to stop that. Or, That's not like, how it works. You know, no, no legal action has been taken. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I think we can take the position that this is in the public domain until uh, uh, we're uh, proven otherwise there. Um, yeah, that uh, that is non-controversial as far as I'm concerned. Um, yeah, well, I, I mean, it, it's been – it's available on lots of different sources uh, as a public domain document. Yeah. So, uh, you know, that that's what I think about that. So he was, he was not fa- happy with it. Um, but he didn't go on to rewrite this or expand it. It feels like it, it's, it's enough material. F- like, this feels like it's got even more material in it than the Green Odyssey in terms of points he's trying to make. And yet it's much more condensed than that, 
right? Uh, it's it's a it's a uh, stock for a soup. <laughs> yeah. Well, so uh, one one thing about this story is it's uh, actually a a prequel to a more famous uh, Philip Jose Farmer short story. So the sort of Silmarillion that it's drawing from mm-hmm. uh, has been worked on in two previous stories before we get to this one. Oh, well, it's related to the lovers I saw, but I haven't read and, the lovers. Uh, and Moth and Rust. Uh, so uh, it's an interesting thing. Uh, so Jean-Jacques Rastanac doesn't make it off the planet in this story, mm-hmm. uh, but we know uh, his first appearance is in 1952 in the lovers as the, he's mentioned as the parent of um, uh, the uh, bug woman in that story. Okay. And, uh, so we know he, he got off of, um, uh, New Gaul or whatever we're calling it. Yeah. Uh, and onto the, the planet that has the, the beautiful people. land. Yeah. He got out of the beautiful land, but he, he didn't in this story. Uh, so, you know, I mean, uh, not that we have to take continuity very seriously. Mm. Um, I don't think someone reading this, uh, when it was published would necessarily, um, have that, uh, continuity in mind. Um, so uh, I don't think we have to necessarily, but I do think it uh, can help us understand like why there's so much material here. Because uh, you know this universe of uh, uh, New France uh, going to the stars um, because it doesn't want to be in a uh, uh, bad position with regard to the uh, uh, Hijack Union or the Israeli uh, Confederation mm-hmm. um, is a you know that that's an interesting thing, and that that makes this story work in some ways. But uh, it's not really it's not really a big deal in the story until you get to right to the end of it. And then you know I, I think it doesn't matter that the woman is Israeli, right? Mm. Uh, except for that her stuff is in Hebrew. I mean, there's other languages that the uh, uh, church could know. I wasn't even sure about that yeah. because <laughs> I thought it might have just been. There were there were a lot of cases in the story where things they said was true were true history yes. were obviously corrupted, devolved uh, knowledge that yes. you know had had just transformed through time. Like it could have so been it Latin, just be, <laughs> that it, right, right? That it was printed in in English or Latin or some printed language that these people you know no longer sp- spoke ex- or read except for the priest class. I, I, could have been, she could have been sure. Yeah, I mean, it no. just, it's not really relevant, except maybe it's just another interesting idea that Farmer throws out. I yeah. I, I want to point out that the lovers is public domain as well. <laughs> At least the or, first the, version, the original short story. Yeah, the, the fifty-eight uh, page version. Novel. Yeah, um, and there's a number of other you know longer works, including a woman a day. <laughs> Uh, AKA. Uh, that, a woman a day is uh, the expanded version of Moth and Rust. Ah, okay. Um, and Moth and Rust, I think, is, I haven't read a woman a day, but uh, I think uh, there's a number of things. Moth that... and Rust is a little bit more interesting if you're if you're into uh, the idea that it's a sequel to The Lovers because mm. you, you lose the the aspect of it where it's a sequel to The Lovers in A Woman a Day. There's probably a lot more. I haven't I'm spent that much time trying to dig out farmer stuff. Um, so. Right. Well, I've read his World of Tears series, mm-hmm. um, which is quite interesting. That's uh, T-I-E-R-S? Characters that are worth following. Um, is and that, I read, uh, how, do, how do you spell tears? Is that... T-I-E-R-S. Yeah, okay. So it's, Levels. It's like a layer... It's a constructed world that's like mm. a layer cake where different... You know, you'll... Uh, I mean, 
he, he doesn't have Barsoom, but picture Barsoom on one level, and mm. I don't know, um, uh, some other science fiction domain on, you know, uh, ancient Greece on, I mm. think, is the bottom level uh, with people that the engineers stole from actual Earth Greece and stuff. And, nice. and you know, so um, uh, basically an Earthman uh, walks through a dimensional door and gets on this level and is trying to figure things like things out anyway so that's an interesting series um and i've read uh, quite a few of his uh things where he takes other people's works and does puts his own spin on it like mm. the other log of phileas fog mm -hmm. which takes the view that the uh, around the world in a hundred uh, sorry around the world in 80 days there was actually an alien who was part of a conspiracy who had, who was doing this for spy reasons, not just to set a record right? and various other, you know, he wrote books with uh, Doc Savage and uh, Tarzan and stuff. So mm -hmm. I've read quite a few of those. I actually have not read many of his <clears throat> other than the world of tears. I haven't read any of his more famous books like to your Sp scattered bodies go or venus mm -hmm. on the half shell or whatever mm -hmm. so i i i t my experience obviously is similar to yours trish uh it sounds like you probably read a little bit more than i have but uh will would it be right to say that he's always exploring some sort of cool idea that 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 he that's yes. what his his main thing is is he's like I've got a cool idea, and then he right. he or turns that in. Six. <laughs> yeah, How do they yeah. Sit together. <laughs> yeah. Or do they? Uh, yeah. So uh, I would say that this is actually a, a very interesting book. The, the it's two hours, so I guess it's a novella, um, or a novel, probably novella, um. But I couldn't fully grasp it because I think I have not read the thing that he is specifically, unless it's, unless it's Three Musketeers, in which case I do not remember it right, <laughs> or he eliminated some of the characters. But the relationship that is, that's going on with, with the aliens, the skins, it's all, it's almost like he, what he said was, okay, I mean, he literally says what he what he means at some point. You know, like he'll say, "The skins were our were our consciences," right? And mm -hmm. the and it's like imposed by the king, right? So I, I I believe what's happening is the French Revolution is happening at the end of the story, right? And that meanwhile they're in the cafe arguing about <laughs> points of philosophy. It's almost like he read a piece by Voltaire on the French Revolution. Or something, and then, and then said, "I I've got a gloss on that. In fact, I've got quite a gloss on." It. <laughs> and he just transforms it into a science fiction story, which is really interesting because it, it 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 is specifically a science fiction story, not a fantasy story. And yet he throws in uh, the changelings, right? Which he he scientificizes right by having these <laughs> alien species. And turning it into a ritual. There's a lot of uh, metaphor happening. Um, you it's know, a fair, it, he, yeah, he takes in fairy tale with it too. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the whole thing with <clears throat> um, eating meat turns you violent. You yep. know, I uh, 
really doubt that's based on any kind of science. Um, no, but, but see, that's the that's... whole attitude of you break these rules and then that that just frees you to break the other rules of society. That's a very typical sort of 18th century, 17th century, 19th century sort of um, unshakable belief that is then practiced by a, a crazy group of people for a while. And then other people pick it up in later generations. And he's, I think, exploring this idea, right? He's, I mean, what's so funny is the opening, uh, it's got a, m- a number of opening, but the one that's after the editorial introduction, which is brief, and then the premise introduction, it, the first sentence is Rastanak had no skin, which is funny. Right. But you can see it's capitalized in the audiobook. You can't tell. Right. But you're supposed to, you know, you're reading it aloud in your inner mind. So that first sentence is funny. And then the second sentence, he was nevertheless happier than he had had been since the age of five. Wow. (laughs) Having no skin and he's happy. And then it says he was happy as a man who can be who lives deep underground under the ground. Right. Okay, that's pretty funny. And then underground is the next word, but it's one word, right? Not underground. Organizations are often under the ground. (laughs) He's being very, very, very playful. They are formed into cells. Okay, cell number one usually contains the leader of the underground. This is all info dump, but it's also... Why are you telling us all this, don't we? (laughs) It's all info dump, but he's so funny. What he's doing, he's he's trying to pull the rug out from under you every sentence with a new poll. (laughs) So you think, oh. And then it goes, Jean-Jacques Rastignac was literally in a cell beneath the surface of the earth. Yes. And then he says he was... So he's doing a little word play. Oh, uh, I think that... And he does a lot more. I think that basically this whole story is a whole bunch of, like, a whole bunch of points to make word play and then see what the consequences of that are. Like, they're the king's mucketeers, right? Not yeah. musketeers. Um, stood by the as a censor. And then there's the official uh, the official crimes. Well, there's a joke about him escaping. If he tries to escape from prison three times, the third time it's going to be illegal. It's almost like he watched this book already, but I I do want to acknowledge it has some clever, quite a few clever things in it. You know, just like the line, uh, forced to look upwards if he wanted to see the sky or the stars, Rastignac suffered from a chronic stiff neck, Mm -hmm. which, of course, also means he's stubborn, as is Mm -hmm. seen throughout the story. Mm -hmm. Um, His philosophy of violence... um, (laughs) So it, it 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 seems to be an attack on the church but it's also an embrace of the church there's a line that's very much um I think true and I don't know where I heard it first but it it really pointed to me um what, what I think he saw the same thing as well um wh- wherever I read it he read it as well you know what happened to the church of england right <laughs> is that um, everybody who was in England was basically either a Catholic or an Anglican. And the reason that they had to be Anglican is because the king is the head of the church. And now 
since everybody's Anglican and you're all included, it means you can have gay priests and atheist priests and <laughs> it doesn't really matter what you believe because we're all on the same team. Um, and so the church is kind of withering, I think right? think it was that per- permissive, Jesse. <laughs> well, it is now, <laughs> right? They literally have, uh, and we, we have the same, there's an Anglican, or they, they've changed the name in Canada, but there's, there's Anglican equivalents in Canada and they are incredibly permissive. They have. Uh, yeah, I, I thought you meant when the split happened. No, not, not now, obviously at first, but that's what happens over time, right? Uh, will ask a question of me on Twitter. When will the party I voted for be, uh, neoliberally corrupt like, uh, other parties that are obviously unnamed for the moment? Um, and I said it'll be a while, I think, right? The, the corruption is happening, but if, if you, if you just give it time, <laughs> everything sort of becomes, I don't know, corrupt. And, and then there's a revolution, right? The, the weird planet that they're on is, it's France, but it's also not France. The blood drinking, that's a metaphor for something. I don't know what it's a metaphor for, but it's a metaphor for something, right? Well, well, uh, hold on. I think I have the answer to that one. Okay, please. Uh, uh, all right. So, uh, we get the, uh, uh, we get the the humans uh, to join the amphibian society because we're promising them eternal life. They get eternal life through drinking blood. Right. Who else gets eternal life through drinking blood? Mm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. Yep. So they're Catholics. Well, or uh, you know, or Christians more broadly, but I think Catholics is uh, specific to this story. Although mm. I don't think it's a, a Protestant v. Catholic point. And, you know, eating, not eating meat is part of, you know, a, a lot of religious traditions and taking that to the extreme where, you know, you've got no eating of meat. That's fairly common. The introduction of alcohol in this story, it, it's, it, he's making a whole bunch of points, but I, I, maybe the fact that he's unsatisfied is that because the, they weren't made explicit enough. I'm not sure. Um, but I think that that's why Trish didn't think this is the greatest story ever. <laughs> and I would have to agree because I, I am not able to extract all the points I think he's trying to make. Um, and either that's because I'm not smart enough, which I doubt, <laughs> or, or it's because I haven't read the right book, which I think is very likely. Um, I assume it's a book. It could have been a movie. Um, it, it, it could have been a po- feels like a book. I, I don't, I don't, it was not originally written in French, but it feels like it was written in another language and then translated and we're just not getting all the, all the jokes or references. Yeah. The original yeah. It's, made. it's like watching, uh, space balls and never having seen Star Wars. Yeah. 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 Right. <laughs> if you've seen Star Wars, space balls makes a hell of a lot more sense. Although. <laughs> 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 But, uh, yeah, um, whereas I think if you were watching, what's the, uh, what's the Mel Brooks one that's a Western? Blazing, Blazing Saddles. Saddles. Blazing Saddles. So I don't think Blazing Saddles is a sp- specifically doing one Western movie, is it? No, it's the whole genre. Yeah. Whereas Men in Tights is clearly, uh, you know, a Robin Hood. And it's, uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's making fun of some specific m- 
film Robin Hoods rather than, uh, you know, others. And so I feel like Worf, <laughs> when uh, Q puts them into uh, Sherwood Forest, you know, on <laughs> Next Generation, I don't have the context for <laughs> for this. But when uh, he says, you're, you're the merry man, he says, I am not a merry man. <laughs> no wonder he's not married. He doesn't get the joke, right? <laughs> well, well, I would propose it's probably not just a single book or movie or thing. I think there's probably a, like a canon of of these kinds of stories mm. and like just sort of French things that he's drawing on here. I mean, if we know anything about him, he's not really good at limiting himself to like one thing. That's right? true. That's yeah. true. I mean, even in uh, other Logophilius Fog, he needs to go out of his way to like explain like what happened to the Mary Celeste like for real like he he puts that into the story <laughs> um you know he's got his alien plot and then he like has to go through the story and correct all the things that were just like scientifically like didn't make sense in Jules Verne's story so he like has to go in and say well you know like this group of people you know this isn't actually a cultural practice they have so it must be xyz um or you know this elephant that they rode on would have been starving uh so mm-hmm. like that explains its behavior here like stuff like that um so uh I, I feel like there's there's probably a lot of stuff here. Um I would propose though that I think there's a um I think there's a there's a satisfying way to read this story, I think, without the the kind of extra context that I don't think any of the three of us is totally getting. Um and that's just uh like as this sort of uh amusing little jaunt, um uh you know, he's uh, making some uh, word jokes all the way throughout. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, I think it, you know, you can just sort of read it as a, a funny uh, planetary romance, right? It is. Uh, a, it, it reminded me of, of a lot of the Green Odyssey, but told from a uh, different character's point of view. Yeah. Um, obviously a different a planet. Generations later. Yeah, different planet, obviously, but we've got the, the down spaceman, right? But uh, uh, the it really feels like a promise unfulfilled. With the uh, may, maybe it makes sense to go out and read the lovers and the rest of the series. But with this, with the six ships in the sky, he's looking up through his well into the sky at night, and he sees the six ships orbiting. Right? Yeah. The promise is unfulfilled. But Absolutely. why is it six? Right. So. It isn't like, you know, to have a certain number, like, I think that that number is to refer to something that I'm like, cause I know about like, uh, the different estates <laughs> in revolutionary France. And I'm mm-hmm. thinking about like what's happening in France today. Um, why the French are much more, why, why their culture is so heavily affected, uh, so, so different is because how long a legacy of a different history they have than neighboring countries, right? And that, that is important. So when I don't know why the six doesn't work, I just have to let it wash over me. And then I get to the next thing that he presents and I'm like, oh, that's cute. Um, and I, I'm missing something here. So I feel like, uh, I'm a stand-up comedian, I'm watching a stand-up comedian is doing his, his routine in Dutch. Because I can pick up a word here or there, but I'm not quite following it. And I think that that's probably not my issue. I think that it is an issue something with either me being projected so far away from this story from the 1950s, which normally doesn't happen, or 
it's because there's something wrong with the text. Like you say, there's, you know, the, he wasn't satisfied with it in some way. Um, there's a story that's kind of similar. I think that it'll have that effect on people, but it's much better done in that it does do its revelation. And I think it is sometimes paired with this book in, you know, ebook editions or whatever. And it's called, um, uh, shit. They crinkled like jewels. No, it's not a Philip Jose farmer. It's, um, uh, okay. Uh, I think I want to say Randall Garrett. Um, it's a Randall Garrett and it's, um, it's relatively short like this, you know, under three hours, probably an hour and a half or something like that. And it's, um, it's actually a retelling of, uh, the conquistadors invasion of Mexico. You know mm-hmm. the book I'm telling, uh, talking about yeah, the science fiction. Yeah, uh, golden. Yeah, golden, em- golden empire. The spoilers of the gol- golden empire. I think it's what yeah, is what it's that called. Yeah, sounds right. And so it's all it's it's you know about these spaceships that are invading um, <laughs> this land, and then it, it's actually really obvious if you're looking at the art <laughs> for the story. But if you're just listening to the audiobook and you, you don't know anything about the context, it's, it is a retelling of a space born retelling of, of the conquest of Mexico by the conquistadors. So mm-hmm. it makes a hell of a lot more sense. And then it's all a metaphor, right? It's all, it's a, it's what Star Trek, the original does is, you know, you go to a planet and the, the, there's a guy with a black on the right side of his face and white on the left side of his face. And he's mad at the guy who has the colors inverted, right? And he says, they're yeah, obviously that inferior. That's a really good story, and I recommend it to anyone. And I think the you spoilers? can find it. Yeah. Uh, right. I don't want to say why. <laughs> it's, it, but it's really clever and well written. It's a novel, uh, yeah. Uh, worth reading for anybody. So I recommend, you know, it. Uh, tracking it down. I read it in a collection of Garrett stories um, that I bought. I don't know if it's public domain. It is but, public uh, domain. I'm sure people can find it if they want. And there's an audiobook on LibriVox as well. Oh, great. Okay. Oh, right. yeah. The well, final line of the read story. The jacket. Just listen to the story. <laughs> final line of the story. Thus died Francisco Pizarro, conqueror of Peru. I was saying Mexico. <laughs> he spoiled it. No. It, it, no. If you if you look at the art on the cover of the or uh, it, it's an astounding, right? Um, if you look at the art, there's a picture of Pizarro right at the beginning of the story. There is no such thing as spoiling it. I mean, it, 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 it despoiling it, yes, but no despoiling. <laughs> Frank Kelly Frias did a number of illustrations, and they're they're all, uh, you know, you've got these ships that with sails flying through the sky. It's <laughs> they didn't believe in spoilers like that back then. <laughs> Um, it's, it's a, it's, it's well worth reading, but because I got it as an audiobook, it took me a minute to figure out, oh, this is kind of a metaphor, right? This is kind of a retelling. And, and when you're watching that episode of Star Trek with a guy with black on the right side of his face and white on the left side of his face <laughs> and the other guy, I mean, it, it could be that it'll take you a minute to figure out it's about, um, uh, you know, American race relations <laughs> could take you a minute, but you're going to figure it out. <laughs> basically, as soon as the guy says what the problem is, you, you basically we can't even tell them apart, and they think that they're right. I mean, it's it writes itself, it, and that's uh, that's what's so cool about a a good science fiction metaphor is is it it gets behind your defenses in a way 
that other things can't can't just di- sort of direct assaults can't. Um, and so I feel like there there is a actually great story in here, but I don't feel like I'm accessing it perfectly. Yeah, I mean, I can definitely get behind that sentiment. I, I I really like I really like the setup, the info dump. Um, I like like I, I, the philosophy of violence, right? <laughs> Hence, the legalization of the underground, the philosophy of violence by the government, an effort to control the revolt that was brewing. So that's a metaphor. What is this philosophy of violence? Yeah, um, two things about that. First of all, I I'm kind of interested by this lenient government that you know <clears throat> allows underground cells and you know allows a, escape of, uh, attempts up to a point i right. thought that was i guess it's laissez-faire you would say <laughs> but, uh, like literally that could be one of the points he's trying to make right <laughs> um, well uh i mean also like so uh so one aspect of the philosophy there uh so here's the aspect of the philosophy of violence that i think um uh is like useful for thinking about uh, you know, uh, an American political context. So, mm-hmm. uh, what's, uh, what's true about the philosophy of violence? It's true that, um, uh, he's allowed to preach it as long as he takes, uh, uh, no action that would, uh, uh, cause it to, uh, um, be carried out, right? Right. Mm-hmm. So yep. it's like, uh, he's got it's a free First speech, Amendment, right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. He's got free speech. Uh, that, that's it. Um, and then, uh, and then there's this bit where, uh, uh, like, so what, what is the philosophy of violence really? Uh, you know, he, he talks about the philosophy of violence a bunch. Uh, but then when he's like thinking about like actually killing people, uh, and having a conversation, uh, with, uh, I think Matt Faraday about it, uh, he's like, well, you know, what's more violent is overthrowing these institutions. Um, and so, I don't know. I think there's like, like, it's really rich here. I don't think it has to be, uh, like a direct metaphor for, I, for something yeah. like in the real world for it to be like, like rich and like something worth thinking about. Mm-hmm. I, I, I brought up all the point. It comes up eight times uh, directly. So I, I'll just read those sections because it's funny. He is using it in multiple ways. So first inst- uh, first instance, he just, you know, is the legalization. Then it says fish, not meat. That is part of my philosophy of violence. So that is actually a, like a point in, you know, Catholicism where they decided that fish was not meat, <laughs> right? Right. Um, for Fridays for or whatever. Lent. Right. Um, for the purposes of Lent, right? Um, and, and so that is a hilarious like point, right? <laughs> because the people need uh, the, I mean, w- one of the things that happens in the story is that he, if you don't eat meat, you don't grow to your full height. Now they become giants, right? Um, and I want to talk about his buddy, Sessasur, however you say his name, because, um, Sessasur. Uh, yeah. I think that's how Greg said it. Yeah. Um, it's, it, the spelling is, uh, interesting. S S A S S A R O R S. So I think he's he's making kind of a joke there, and I'm not getting that joke yet. But hopefully you guys can help me with that. Um, next time it comes up, um, they're again talking about fish. Don't eat my fish, my parents said to me. That meant eat it. 
<laughs> so despite my distaste at the idea and my squeamish stomach, I did eat fish. And I liked it. And I, I grew to manhood. I adopted the philosophy of violence. And I continued to eat fish, although I am not a changeling. The changeling thing is also fascinating, right? So it it seems to be like the, the way I was thinking about it. It's actually a horrible thing because I think of what they what the uh, Catholic and other churches, Anglicans and such, did in Canada to grab kids from their parents and they put them in a residential school and basically, you know, culturally torture them and physically torture them and all sorts of horrible things. But notice it didn't happen the other way, right? There's no exchange. Um, so that's not what it is, right? It's something else. Um, but, of course, people would go to church with their children and they tell their children what the priests are saying at the front. And so there is a kind of critique of religion in here. But his his rejection of that, it feels like he, this is supposed to be some sort of Voltaire-like character, right? Somebody who is rejecting because someone else is saying, this is what you should do. And, and of course, Voltaire, as a, as a guy, he's both reviled and exiled, but also revered, right? People love Voltaire. Other kings, right, invite him to come visit because they think he's so great. Right. <laughs> of course. Meanwhile, their cousin who runs France or whatever thinks it's a terrible thing that he's there. And it's not even, it doesn't even have to be the king, right? It just has to be the government. Um, so I think that there's something very basic in this story, this philosophy of violence. It's, it's almost like daring to be a revolutionary, right? And so if you have a free speech system, where you can go around and say whatever you want, but the actual practice of it, um, it's, it could be, um, I reject the church. He's rejecting the skin, right? And the skin is, uh, it's acting like an external, it's a vampire, first of all, right? It sucks your, <laughs> sucks your blood. Um, it gets stronger. It changes you. It's, it's acting like a, um, a parent, but also like, uh, a super ego, right? Preventing uh, you from following actions that you your id would otherwise be, and then you tie that in with the alcohol, which you know in Vino Veritas reveals the character within. Um, and then you go to that joke that he's got a skinful. <laughs> so he's being very, very playful, but it's so. So, uh, unremittingly unclear until it when you know, there's these glimpses of light. I just, I don't really, I couldn't follow why it was happening that way. I feel that same way whenever I dip into, uh, the, the period of, of the musketeers, you know, pre revolutionary France with all these, um, <laughs> Uh, literally just the three musketeers it's hard to follow what's going on there's this church that's very powerful there's this distant king there's these people who work for the king in the the place of the mus you know the musketeers are soldiers uh 
Um, and yet there's also the people as a whole and nobody's the good guy here. Right. Nobody, I can't understand the motivations of anybody other than they all seem to want power and the musketeers want to have fun. <laughs> I don't get it is what I'm saying. Yeah, I see what you're saying. And, uh, there's an element of that to this story. Mm -hmm. Uh, whereas like what are, uh, what is like, I mean, Rastinak, like it seems like his motivation is, is purely, uh, he just like wants to get free, right? Like, yep. That's all he cares about. Uh, up until like he has his like moral revelation at the end of the story, which uh, you know I don't even know if it's necessary. Uh, it's certainly a little interesting, um, but uh, you know, uh, yeah. What, what's he about, and what are the uh, uh, what are the other characters about, and his relationship with this uh, with the woman Lucine? Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, that's like another thing that this has in common with uh, with the Green Odyssey is mm -hmm. uh, like one of the driving conflicts in the story is between uh, 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 the man and the and uh, the main man and the main woman. And of course, in the Green Odyssey, it's a more straightforward love interest, like, you know, husband trying to abandon his native wife kind of situation uh, here. It's it's more complicated. Right. I mean, right from the jump, he's like. He's attracted to her because he's repulsed by her. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she turns out to be a pretty irredeemable character. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's what appears to happen. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. But then uh, but then they have this philosophical conversation that, like, kind of uh, absolves her of her sins in some kind of way. Mm. Um, but uh, I mean, what are what are her motivations? She's all over the place. Um, I mean, it's. Uh, she's, she's trying to, uh, you know, uh, uh, support her father, right? Like she's obsessed with that. Um, and then, uh, but she also like really, really wants, um, uh, you know, Rastinac's approval, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, that's like, uh, so, uh, so she's conflicted. Um, and then, uh, uh, you know, to keep Rastinac, uh, she kills this other woman and that's like. I mean, that's pretty deranged, right? Mm -hmm. And so she's deranged throughout the entire story. Um, yeah, I don't know what to do with that. Mm -hmm. uh, d there is a point, you know, the, the title, Rastanak the Devil. Um, I, I don't even get that. So there's a kind of um, alcohol, uh, cognac, called Rastanak. And it's, you know, it's an old brand. <laughs> um <laughs> I don't know if that's it because alcohol is the devil in a certain sense, right? Um, we don't feel that today in 2020 as people did in, you know, the hundred years ago. We don't feel it as they did in the 19th century. I mean, pose the black cat. If you guys remember that story, it's actually hard to notice unless you're paying very close attention to it, which I, I did for a show, right? I'm like parsing every sentence, every line perfectly, trying to understand everything. And it's actually. Perfectly, I'm sure. Oh, uh, no, I'm trying to. I'm not saying I'm doing it perfectly. <laughs> but what's so interesting is, is it, it, we don't see it today. I didn't see it the first time I read it, the third time I read it, but I saw it when I did, you know, did my special attention, getting the highlighter out and looking up every single word. Um, 
it's actually a screed uh, or, or not a screed. It's a satire of uh, temper uh, temperance. It's he's actually attacking temperance, or at least he's using the idea of. Uh, you know, temperance was like a huge thing in the 19th century, and it really had a long legacy, you know, that's still with us today, although we don't think much about it. But teetotaling, that's a word that we sort of recognize, right? It was tied up with being moral, and and in the mid-early uh, uh, 19th century in the United States, there was a movement afoot to try and get people to stop drinking alcohol. So... All the things that happen in that story, the black cat, are much better understood as – there's also just enjoying the story. But there's this level where, you know, he sees the black cat that returns to him after he's murdered his own first one on the head of a keg of alcohol, uh, probably rum. I can't remember. Pretty sure it was rum. Um, that is not an accident, right? Um, and the fact that he – you know, has a house full of animals that he um, abuses his wife. There's all sorts of things that are happening in the story that are best understood through the light of his excuse that alcohol is what caused caused all my problems. We probably don't even you probably don't even remember that he blames it all on alcohol when actually he's the one lifting the cup to his mouth, right? And that is actually a, a, a real phenomenon that, you know, people have to deal with is, is if I'm an addict and I'm the one sticking that needle in my arm, who's responsible? Well, I'm addicted. That's out of my power, right? This is what a lot of systems, uh, well, I'm thinking of a specific one, Alcoholics Anonymous, right? They say you have to, uh, admit to a higher power, which it's all in this story. In a certain sense, the higher power is literally attached to your body, right? Your skin, the thing, this external organism that is connected somehow to one created by the government and tended by scientists, right? It's very, there's something going on in this story and I'm not getting it. So it could be that it, it's alcohol is the devil. On the other hand, uh, a Balzac uses Rastanac as a character in a number of stories. Uh, the name, um, you know, the countess of and such. And uh, so that, that could, you know, he read a Balzac story, but I'm just not familiar enough to say what's going on here. And I feel like if I went through it a few more times, I would totally be able to look in the right direction to find the book. Or maybe if I had a letter, you know, where he said, ah, oh, that's me talking about, you know, this book I read or whatever. And yet, I know also that there's lots of stuff in here that is perfectly, um, perfectly enjoyable on its own. You know, the, the chase <laughs> with the, with the, the footed cars is pretty funny, but there is a lot of info dump compared to the amount of action that takes place. Yeah. We learn about the jump button and like what kind of cars have the jump button. Mm. So it's like really important that we understand like everything about the jump button. Right. <laughs> um, and I don't know if you guys remember this, but one important thing to remember about the jump button is that it, it you know, there's no way to moderate it. It's just full power. Right. So that's the only kind of jump you can do. <laughs> so he's. And also, you can only do that kind of jump if you like have kind of an elite car. <laughs> right. Only the rich people get that. 
<laughs> so and it's still called a Renault. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So uh, the reason it's called a Renault is because it's funny, <laughs> not because it's made by the company Renault. Right. Yeah. yeah There's no, and the Ford. Right. It's not made by the Ford of the United States. He's he's that's he's uh, just playing. He's just playing. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a broader point in, or rather, there's a broader point in all of Farmer's uh, stories like this uh, that uh, is, uh, you know, uh, people who are in cultures like tend to think of their cultures as being like these kind of like eternal things and like mm-hmm. these are our mm-hmm. ways uh and he he's always trying to point out to you that everything is cultural yes like every mm. everything you do is cultural and he tends to point out that uh cultures uh like transform in some pretty significant ways yeah uh, over the course of a person's lifetime um so those are and maybe that's just because that's how human society works and you know like that's why that's in phil stories i think uh, but, uh, you can kind of see that here, uh, uh, that these things are, are mutable, but then, uh, you know, he's also just like wants to play with the stuff too, wants to like mm-hmm. say like, well, a linguistics expert could probably like recognize these phrases mm-hmm. and it's like, well, who's the linguistic expert here? It, it's you, Phil. In fact, like, uh, <laughs> like that's what you're saying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let me read you a sentence, and uh, you try and tell me what it means, okay? It's a long sentence from uh, about halfway through. Everybody knew the church had been outlawed a long time ago because it opposed the use of of the skins, capital S, and certainly other practices that went along with it. So, so no sooner had that been done than the sa- than the sassasors, anxious to establish their check and balance system, had made sassasors. Uh, anxious to establish their check and balance system, had made arrangements through the minister of ill will to give the church unofficial legal rec- recognizance or recognizance. Um, <laughs> so the sorcerers are somebody. Um, I picture them in my head. I thought the sorcerers was the name of the natives that are not the amphibians. Yes. <laughs> But who are they in our non? If we're if we're oh. translating it back, I don't know, and yet I, I f- don't think they have to be anyone. I, I think that that's possible. But he's 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 got they've got their own system, right? So had made arrangements through the minister of ill will. Um, is that just is that just accuracy in naming? <laughs> Will, <laughs> I mean, he's making a yeah. I mean, I think that's just a joke. Like, it's a joke that in this society, uh, like you know, in our society, we would never ministry have ministry of defense, the- right? Yeah, yeah. Or, but we would never have that in our society because of the way that our culture works. In their culture, they have something called a ministry of ill will. Um, and then you know, I just really got into how he described the containment strategy of of putting down the churches. Everybody just joined the church, yes. and, Like didn't follow its rules. Uh, that that's right. that's what I'm talking about. The Anglican Church, right? So right. everybody, yeah. just, if you want to go to a public school in the UK, right? That is, you know, uh, Oxford or whatever. You have to become uh, you have to become an Anglican, right? So now you've got all these Sikhs. <laughs> and atheists and homosexuals, uh, you know, going to the church, um, and, you know, paying obeisance. 
and that dilutes the meaning, right? And dilutes the the whole point of a, a religious whack jobbiness uh, is we are setting ourselves apart from others is broken if you include everybody who wants to be included. And more importantly, those who don't want to be included are included because they want to get something else. Uh, it dilutes it and makes it what it, you know, a very inoffensive and not particularly scary religion. Right. Which, which is, which is, I think that's the point he's trying to make is, is he saying this is actually sort of a more honest system instead of having, you know, the government persecutor <laughs> trying to put you in jail. They call him the prosecutor, but really it's the persecutor, right? They want to make, <laughs> they get their bones by putting more people in prison. Oh, that's, that's true. Well, why don't we just say that? No, no, we can't say that. If it was a ministry of war and you're in peacetime, then you have to change the name. We think in our sort of, I don't know, deluded society, a self-deluded society. But if we change the name to ministry, uh, minister of defense, then it's okay. Yeah, I'd just point out that as far as nomenclature goes, the United States Department of Defense was called the Department of War until yeah. Oh, yeah. the 1940s. Right, 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 right. And 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 there was there was truth in the naming, right? But now, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> getting named. Oh, uh, we won't launch any aggressive but see that the, the, the it beca- if you just say it long enough, you know you're talking to the minister of defense or whatever. What, what's what's the uh, what's the the guy the unk unk's guy? I don't know. Uh, you know the uh, unknown unknowns guy. Oh, uh, Rumsfeld wasn't Ru- it? But what's his title? What was his title? I can't remember. So we call him a minister of defense in Canada. I don't remember what you guys call Secretary it. Secretary of Defense. Okay. SecDef. Right? So when you're talking to the SecDef uh, at a conference, he's telling you about your unk-unks <laughs> and, you know, how many uh, Iraqis were killed today and whether that number is real and how they know that number and that all that stuff. Um, just going to the meeting and accepting that he's calling himself the Secretary of Defense is the corruption that that gets you to keep going to those meetings where you probably should go because you're a reporter, but then we end up where we are, where nobody talks about the, the, the you know, the, when was the last time you saw a, a news report in the news on the television about all the wars that are going on right now? Never. Right? It just doesn't happen anymore. Every once in a while they say, Oh yeah. Anniversary, 20th anniversary of, of uh, the war in Afghanistan. Oh yeah, yeah. My son's going off to fight in that same war. Like, uh, th- there's like a little. Int- oh, isn't that interesting? Report. Meanwhile, you know that's not what's on the news all day long because if you start going to those meetings where the guy is, so there, there's some sort of interesting point he's making, um, in this story, and I feel it, but I don't fully grok it. <laughs> I, I I wish there was like a um a podcast where somebody did a show on this and then totally explained it to me because I'd be oh yeah of course I'd be I'd be totally there and I I feel like I'm not that person 
So this is kind of a failure in my part. Uh, how much did you know about this story when you decided we should do a show on it, Will? Oh, I read it a few times. Okay, so you're you're still trying to grok it too, I assume. Yeah, yeah, I read it. This is the um, second time I read it this year. Wow. Uh, yeah, yeah, I read it. I um I went through um uh all the Philip Jose Farmer stuff mm-hmm. on um librivox uh that i hadn't listened to before pretty quickly um it was just this one story called heal and i was like well mm. i just read the lovers this year and i want to read moth and rust so i'm gonna read so i'm gonna re-listen to um uh this story uh and uh you know i, I really do think there is something here there is something uh, there but you, i think you're right that it's uh um it needs to be uh it needs to be brought to the surface um uh I think, uh, you know, there's usually a lot of stuff in Phil's stories that, like, are kind of like Easter eggs, but, mm. uh, um, there's usually a narrative you can just, like, enjoy, too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah. We're, we're, just, go ahead. No, we're missing a, a bit of both. So there, there's, there's a bit of fun in here, but honestly, I kept thinking, this should be longer. And I almost never, ever, ever think that, right? I usually think, no, this should be shorter. Um, but the problem here is he's, is he is, he's set up a whole lot of stuff and almost none of it goes deeper than the setup. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, these skins, right? Like, uh, that's, a, that's an idea for a book, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. By I mean, itself. It's one of the better dystopian devices that I've thought of. Cause oh, it's, it's like, amazing. It's an, it's a biological technology. So that makes it kind of gross, right? Yep. And it like drinks your blood and it controls how you feel and controls what you think. It's an amazing and, and idea. Uh, like that's a novel right there. It is <laughs> without all this French stuff. Uh, dude, the, today that'd be a trilogy or a series, right? <laughs> at the, the at the minimum. Seems. Uh, oh, totally. And uh, I mean, and he, and they would take it in so many different directions than he does, right? You know, oh, your skin's the wrong color, right? <laughs> oh, he's a half skin or whatever, right? There'd be all this stuff, all this amazing thing going on with it. And that is only part of this story. Right. right. I thought it was really interesting how it turns out that the skins are not just your conscience. They're linked to all the other skins right. and they help you feel what other people are feeling. Um, and yeah, that's it's could brilliant. Be a it, whole story. It, it's, it's so brilliant because it, it's a, it's, it's basically it's saying it's your culture, right? He has come up with a, I don't even know how that even happened, right? Like just getting that idea into the arena of of sf ideas i've never seen that before i've seen things that are not wholly dissimilar but nothing that that was like oh that's just you know you come to this planet and you can you can either leave or you can accept our ways um that's cool and then what's the effect oh uh you have to wear this uh parasite it's he never calls it a parasite right and i think that might be kind of interesting like as a point that he never calls it out as a parasite, which is what it is. Right? It's literally sucking your blood. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. and it has and certainly ill effects. Some other interesting ideas where in order to survive or be in a culture, people had to adjust sure. biological adjustments. Blood child is an amazing story. Or whatever. Octavia um, Butler's Blood Child, right? That 
that that's a great story of alien human interaction in which we think, oh, this is this is totally wrong, and yet we're kind of okay with it, sort of, and then we shouldn't be, right? But uh, when you uh, when you uh, <laughs> tweeted me the other day, <laughs> Trish, you said, well, Rastnak was sure um, something. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I'm like, I haven't even started it yet, right? I'm, I'm just like, <laughs> okay, well, we'll see how this goes. And now I, I agree. It is definitely something. <laughs> it's definitely yeah. something. And and honestly, I I, I always think back to, to – to your scattered bodies go. Philip Jose Farmer is capable of some really amazing scenes and some really amazing, um, cons- like building up a world. But then also think about how that he doesn't really have an, a good explanation, right? I do not like that, uh, that part of it. I feel like the way he writes books and stories is he is a seat of his pants guy and he has not got a core twist or a core reveal or a core uh thing he's going for um in uh, which I do see with like Philip K Dick if you read a Philip uh, in short stories anyways if you read a Philip K Dick short story oftentimes he has a very specific thing he wants to communicate to you and he does that through the story I don't feel that, or, or maybe, maybe, maybe it's not a, it's not a feeling. So, like, into your scattered bodies go. That book is a, a, an amazing thing, but then there's nothing. If you see what I mean. Well, well, I actually don't see what you mean there. You're gonna have to explain that. Okay, so the premise is everybody dies or whatever, and they wake up in this. River world, this new place. And everybody who's ever died is there, including good people and bad people, strange people, and we all have to make our way in this world, right? So it's almost like a metaphor for being born on Earth, <laughs> except we recognize the, the residents from history. When I was born on Earth, I didn't recognize the residents from history. I had to be taught about them, right? Um, so when you see, uh, Herman Goering, uh, going down the river and Mark Twain and, uh, you know, this caveman dude and all the people who show up in the story, I'm like blown away. Well, that, that's not until the second book that those characters show up. I don't even remember. <laughs> yeah. I, I, like, I, I like, cause like, to your scattered bodies go is the one about like Burton and company. Isn't that the first one? Yeah. Yeah. And that's the one that's about Burton and Burton. Company. Right, right, right. And, and then, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, and they don't they don't get mingled together until like the the third or fourth book. But um, uh, I guess like, but but in the end, there's no reve- there's no satisfactory reveal that says, oh, and this was what it was. It it, it yeah. feels like I, I it feels like the problem is I'm still in my world where I don't know why I was born. It's because of well, I do know it's because genes make want to make more genes and <laughs> such, but that's kind of not interesting. Not narratively interesting. It's kind of narratively sad, right? <laughs> Whereas it, it, w- what we love about fiction is that there can be this this uh, explanation that sits free floating as true 
even though it's false, right? I mean, I, I think the, I mean, I feel like Riverworld was explained, though. I, I, honestly, I didn't finish, how many books are there? I didn't think oh, I finished all right, so, them all. So th- there's a couple different ways to read Riverworld. I think that uh, the best way to read it is to read uh, the first four books. Uh, that's kind of, those are the ones that Phil wanted to write. And then okay. there's a fifth book that they, like, kind of offered him too much money for him to not write it. <laughs> right. Uh, but it, like, doesn't, like, it's more, like, here are, like, so here's like a list of Phillips Jose Farmer's thoughts about some things and also a weird battle scene uh, involving characters from uh, uh, Alice in Wonderland. Mm. Uh, but uh, the first four books, I think um, uh, they kind of lay out what the what the point of uh, Riverworld was, uh, which is, you know, you have this uh, society of uh, uh, ethical aliens that have this technology they inherited from a previous society where they're able to like. Uh, essentially uh, record your soul uh, when you die uh, and they're like trying to help you uh, uh, give you this time on river world to uh, reach enlightenment right. so you can kind of join this oversoul. Um, and you know, so they built this, this world and there's uh, you know, there's some drama among the uh, these ethical aliens. Like some of them are more sympathetic to us than other ones. And then they have, these, do you like, think he started agents. with that idea or do you think that that, that is what he he, uh, yeah, I, I think so. Because okay. hinted at because at, at the end of the first book, like there, there, you know, there, there's hints about what's going on, but there's kind of a, uh, I mean, you know, one of the books is entitled "The Dark Design." Like, there's kind of a, uh, there's something like not quite right going on with the these ethical aliens and like what their plans are. Mm-hmm. Now, I think like where uh, the books might like have left you with a feeling uh, like they left you hanging are in two places. Mm-hmm. Um, one is, uh, a lot gets built up between like, there's going to be this big war between mm-hmm. the two river boats. And then it's just like, there's this giant war and it's actually utterly pointless. Everyone just dies really pointlessly. And like, so there's like a point there about war. Right. Mm. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, it gets really built up and then there's a lot of characters that they get built up and then they're just like killed. Um, uh, uh, there's the like uh, the blimp woman. Um, <laughs> I can't remember her name right now because I, I I didn't prep for a talk about right, her right, right. But, <laughs> but uh, you know she she gets to build this blimp and you know uh, she's like as far as I know like the only queer character in any Philip Jose Farmer story and um, you know uh, also like as a side issue like has dated Jack London before like this is like an interesting <laughs> character. Um, right. Uh, and then like, so she gets up in the the blimp and then the blimp is destroyed and then we don't hear about her again. Um, so there's like a lot of things like that in there that are unsatisfying, but I think there's this overarching narrative to river world. Mm. And then you get to the end of the fourth book and it's like, they get to this tower where they're going to figure out what's, uh, you know, like, like what, like, you know, they're going to find some like secret truth. And then he intentionally, we don't know what they find inside the tower. And then we go to the fifth book and, you know, we find out what they found inside the tower. It's still kind of mysterious. And this book has no point. Ah, yeah. Um, uh, so so I, I think the ending on this is actually really good, <laughs> which is oh, yeah, 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 which is funny, right? Because the I I don't think the whole book, uh, the whole novella is satisfying at all, but I do find the ending satisfying, which is excellent. <laughs> so uh, there's a kind of um, and I also really enjoy the beginning. I think it, it, it's so condensed. That uh, I can't believe I'm saying it. this needed to be way longer, like at least double the length. And then I think it would have been uh, uh, a lot more. But but then if he kept if he kept adding, you know, 
uh, curly cues and <laughs> ornate spins um, in between them, maybe it wouldn't have been better longer. But just using the material, he's gone. He he could have had a lot more of a solid no. Like it, this could have been an amazing thing, and r- really, it's not amazing. It's interesting. That's all I can say about it. It's interesting. Yeah, and he's got amazing stories from the fifties. This isn't one of them. Mm. Like, yeah, because I mean, he's got like a lot of good stuff from the fifties and early sixties that like do explore ideas in a way that ties them up. Uh, that like, um, you know, it was like really shocking sometimes, mm. and, like interesting. And well, you know, this isn't. I haven't read stories. the lovers, but that's that's what people say about it, right? Yeah, well, the lovers is one of those stories, but there's also um, uh, without like. Uh, please do uh, yeah yeah without going into like too many details about each of them there's uh the god business um there's um uh open to me my sister there's uh mother there's the alley man um there's one whose name i'm forgetting right now that is uh about like these uh uh, teens on this so it's like it's set up like a teen movie but they're these aliens on this planet where everyone kind of looks like a sphinx and they're like driving around and like oh by the way on this planet like everybody's a hermaphrodite (laughs) um uh and and like and you know so they're doing these wild things before they have to become adults and then they like get caught by the police and then the police are like oh actually because you guys are rebels we're going to like put you in this weird space program. We've discovered all over the universe there are like sphinxes that have been set up and like it's you who has to go out and figure it out. Wow. Like like that's the kind of story he's writing in like the 1950s and like the early 60s and uh so this could have been a story like that, mm. but uh I I mean maybe it was just um uh uh uh, Joe Lansdale refers to Philip Jose Farmer's electric brain, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's just like always generate like ideas yeah. and so you're coming up with all these ideas like maybe these weren't the ones i know? feel like if he had re- he, if he had submitted a script to star trek it would have been the best star trek you know original star trek series uh, the, the french planet with the skin <laughs> uh, just any like they they like he submits a script and then they would have to you know whittle it down I mean, he, did, he did submit star trek scripts like did they he just never got accepted yeah 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 and some of them got turned into stories i um uh there's uh, uh my friend uh danny adams who is uh, actually philip jose farmer's nephew has uh has written a fanzine article about this that i yeah. can uh in the show notes we can reference where that is cool so uh, the reason uh, the reason i bring star trek up is not just because i've been watching lots of star trek it's because um Every week, you know, you go to a new planet, uh, unless there's a space anomaly. <laughs> you go to a new planet, and they've got some culture that is weird, and the humans have to experience it, right? Um, it's like, uh, it's it's basically, it's like um, a visit to the Green Odyssey planet this week, and then a visit to that other planet, where I just watched two season one episodes of Next Generation, where, where they visit... The planet of the counting coup uh, black people, right? It's basically a combination of, I don't know, Plains Plains Indians in the United States and uh, uh, the Moors, I guess, from North Africa. Um, and they kidnap Tasha Yar, and that's the story, right? Is is how do you deal with a culture that's different? And then they go to another planet where it's a matriarchal society and all the men are tiny. And they have to deal with that. The presenting of a weird culture, I think this this uh, Philip Jose Farmer 
is really good at that because of his electric brain. Um, well, and he considers all cultures to be weird. Like he understands he's right. he comes from a weird culture. <laughs> yes. Right. Like that's, I, I think that's at the, uh, and I think that's like the angst driving Philip Jose Farmer's writing is like, he's actually uncomfortable with the society that he lives in. Mm-hmm. Like he's like, he's well adjusted to it. Um, you know, he's like a fan. He's wearing the skin. And, um, <laughs> he, he, yeah. He wears the skin, but uh, he, you know, the things that he writes about are like, uh, it's all about, like some guy who lives like a staid normal life like going off to the world of tears and oh wait i've like i've you know i've been a god this whole time mm. um and, and like that kind of thing i also i pulled up a uh, reference to the the star trek episode that mm-hmm. uh, he submitted it was called the rebels unthawed um and i, I can send you a link uh, yeah to something cool. about that but uh it got turned his star trek writing got turned into two stories um uh, the Shadow of Space, uh, which is a really, which when I read it, I was like, oh, this is like a Star Trek episode. Mm-hmm. And uh, it kind of deals with um, uh, what happens, uh, you know, if you if you go really fast, you actually like gain mass, right? Right. Um, well, an apparent so, mass, uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, the, the kind of thought experiment is the, uh, the this, uh, space vessel uh, travels really, really fast and then they get bigger than the universe. Okay. Uh, um, that's cool. So, like, there's this woman's body floating outside the universe that's bigger than the universe. There's their vessel. That sounds very much. If you if you ask me which author wrote it, <laughs> I would have to say that was Philip Jose Farmer. Yeah. And then there's a there's another uh, story that I've forgotten. Uh, what happens in it? Uh, the ske- sketches among the ruins of my mind that started as a Star Trek episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there, there is an, uh, there is a Danny Adams article out there uh, with the, uh, with the, the details that was first published in uh, Farmer File Number Nine, but is also uh, uh, available in some other places, and I can get uh, that information into the notes. I want to read uh, a little section from the middle here. This is just, uh, there's so many gems within this, um, and this is really fun. So uh, this is, uh, I don't know. Somewhere down in the middle of the text. Rastneck became brisk. He said, We go to your castle, giant. We use your smithy to put sharp points on our swords. Points, so like they didn't have them before, right? Because they're symbolic, sort of. Points to slide through a man's body from front to back. Don't pale. That is what we must do. And then we pick up your goose that lays the golden eggs. For we must have money. If we are to act efficiently, after that, we buy or steal a boat and we go to wherever the earth man is held captive and we rescue him. And then, says Lu- said Lucin, her eyes shining with emotion, <laughs> what do you, what, what you do then will be up to you, but I am going to leave this planet and voyage with the earth man to other worlds. Silence, then Malfrey said. Why leave here? Because there is no hope for this land, nobody will give up his skin. Le Beaupais is doomed to a lotus life, and that is not for me. Archambald jerked a thumb at the amphib girl. What about her people? Um, I'm not clear. Is she actually an alien? 
No, I believe she's, she's a, a human that was changeling, right? The yeah, that's what I thought, right? Okay. Yeah, she's a changeling. Yeah, um, that's what I thought. And in fact, like the the changelings are the ones who are actually driving what's going on in Amphib society, mm-hmm. right? Like, like they're getting ready to kill all the like all the like actual Amphibs, and like like that's like a thing that's going on. I'm gonna just continue a little bit more here. Uh, they may win the water people. What's the difference? It will be just the exchange of one skin for another. Before I heard of the landing of the Earthman, I was going to fight no matter what the cost to me or inevitable defeat. But not now. Moferti Rumble was angry. Ah, Jean-Jacques, this is not my comrade talking. Are you sure you haven't swallowed your skin? You talk <laughs> as if you were inside out. What is the matter with your brain? Can't you see that it will indeed make a difference to the amphib if the amphibs got the upper hand? Can't you see who is making the amphibs behave the way they have been? Rastanak urged the Renault towards the rose-colored lacy, lacy, rose-colored lacy castle high up on the hill. The vehicle trotted tiredly along the rough and narrowed forest pass. This is, uh, uh, this, there's some almost Philip K. Dick level of ridiculously fun stuff in here. And also there's this, this, uh, like, I, I swear this is a scene from something that has been reimagined, like a, a very like let's storm the Bastille sort of thing. And I'm like, I, okay, but I'm not recognizing which one it is. And it might be that he he just is he's doing somebody, you know, a style because this is an adventure story, um, you know, with the chases. <laughs> And the revolutionaries and, and the very, you know, it, there's something really cool going on here. But it's, it's, it, 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 like you're saying, gaining mass. Um, if a car drives down the street really quickly and it's really noisy, I, I look over at it, but I don't understand why the driver's doing that. You know, <laughs> that's what, that's how I feel. The gaining of the mass. The, the, this is certainly dense, but it's also foggy. I can't see through to what is going on, but, those those lines uh put sharp so- points on our swords points to slide through a man's body from front to back that is uh that's definitely the philosophy of violence right <laughs> and it's like nobody thought of it before this is a very peaceful planet right all the all the horrors that happened the uh, uh stealing of babies um and the revenge stealing of babies it's it's all sanctioned and it's fine everybody's cool with it it's, it's because they because they don't have alcohol. <laughs> Is that the point he's making? It's the skin, right? I mean, you keep alcohol in a skin too, so there's a, there's a whole lot of levels going on here. Yeah, well, and, and that's funny, right? Like to to shake off the lotus life, you have to like get drunk. That's right. And and he's right in the sense that you know if if you want to go mess up your life, go to the bar and get into a bar fight, right? <laughs> <laughs> It'll do it, um, but he—he's—he's um, he's like a freedom guy, right? Liberté, uh, liberté, yeah. And they have egalité, and they have fraternité. So what's the problem? I don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> well, and wh- why is the Earth Man, and turns out to be an Earth Woman, in this story? Yeah, I mean it's under 
it, it's just it feels like a common plot element that was in his head at that time. It was right? a cool it's a cool one and we see it, yeah, but it, that's not yeah, it it's not is. doesn't need to be here. As far as I can yeah. tell, it doesn't need to it doesn't add anything to the story other than it's a it's a thing to focus on. Yeah, and when we have to and because when he's writing this, he's writing it as a prequel to a story he's like already written, right? Mm. And that you know, he knows that there has to be some kind of mechanism for this man to get off the planet. Right. Um, which I, I think the story would be better probably if it were not a prequel to another story. I agree. Or, you know, you mentioned that the earth man lands at the end or earth woman lands at the end, right? Then that leads to another, you know, a way off now that they've solved, but, but actually all he's done is spark a revolution, right? He hasn't, he hasn't finished the revolution. In fact, he goes to the cafe to start having a chin wag about <laughs> about stuff. In fact, what he started is a riot, right? We yes. don't even know if he sparked yeah, a revolution. The, the majority of the people are not don't know anything about this. Uh, I think there's a promise of violence, but there's a promise of more alcohol being made, right? So, I think I think that that's that's uh, it's implied. Well, may, maybe not. That's my sense was that. It's it's the French Revolution starting, but uh, again, <laughs> what is the evidence for that? Well, it's just I, a vague feeling that based on certain facts about this story, yeah. I I I, I want to I, I would totally read a story set on at the beginning of the humans landing on this planet, right? That that'd just be amazing. I'd be yeah, a and how they came uh, to accept this game. A classic, a classic of science fiction uh, in uh, in terms of ideas. That's an amazing idea. They they leave the Earth, they come to this planet. Um, they say you can you know mine the uranium uh, and leave, or you can uh, you can you can uh, adopt our ways, and it, our ways aren't that bad. You, you'll like them, and then people do, and then this the uh, or you know two generations in. Um, told from a kid's point of view, a YA uh, farmer book. I'll totally read that. That'd be awesome. It's f- super rich, this story. And yet, not satisfactory, right? <laughs> uh, so I think what needs to happen, in my opinion, is uh, uh, somebody who has kind of a, uh, like a, like a psychedelic art style um, uh, needs to adapt this mm. into a comic book or mm. a cartoon. And also uh, whoever is working with that artist, if that artist uh, himself or herself or themselves is not a writer, uh, needs to like rewrite the story. Yeah, I, I would say reimagine but I, I it. I think yeah. the comic book could be better than the actual uh, novella. Uh, it's very visual too. There's a lot going on visually in this, and and uh, as we say, you know, without any piece of art to guide us, I don't think that that's uh, a good thing. I think we would be much better off with a piece of, like, I just want to see a human and a amphib and a sorcerer wearing their skins. Um, you know, I mean, I I would like a Lego line like this, you know. Oh yeah, like, oh, like, dude. Yeah, you, yeah. This would—that's what I mean—is like this is like a world that I think would be like very appeal- appealing to children of all ages. You yes, know what I, mean? I agree. And they have a pays, you know. They have uh, r- rapiers. 
Who doesn't want to like build a, uh, a a coach, a Renault with a whole bunch of feet at the bottom <laughs> <laughs> and a jump button inside? I mean, it's... yeah, yeah, it has to have the working jump button. Like, that's I right. Think that's what makes the set. Um, maybe that's what your uh, your there, next Lego project needs uh, to be. Dude, there's like uh, there's like there's a lacy is. castle, a rosy colored lacy castle. Come on, it's it's a uh, it's uh, it's visually amazing, right? Bright oh, green, the, flaming the scarlet. Is the uh, the set that's the underground cell is the one that I want. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it could turn out to be the greatest Lego movie ever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like so, Lego. You need to. Um, so uh, I think that Lego should. Uh, you know, even though the story is in the public domain, I think that they should uh, make a deal with the Philip Jose Farmer and get it cheap. Trust and yep. make uh, uh, Lego. Um, uh, new Gaul, or uh, you know, yeah. Um, I think it'd be great. <laughs> it, it, it would, it would actually be great because with so many good ideas in here, um, it could be amazing. And and it's not bad. This is not a bad story, but it is not satisfying in the way that I want it to be. Alas, but still. Um. Yeah, before we wrap up completely, mm-hmm. I would like to make a recommendation sure. um, of a story that is almost a complete inversion of this story. Okay. Uh, Ooh. Except for one way. Um, Emergency Skin by N.K. Jemison won the best novelette, uh, the Hugo, uh, the 2020 Hugo for best novelette. Uh, and it concerns um, a scout. Uh, okay, uh, backstory is that um, the Earth was uh, having cli- climatological uh, wreckage and was basically, everyone knew it was going to be, you know, just, uh, it would be was becoming uninhabitable. And, uh, you know, some of the, the elite managed to escape off planet and go, go, you know, settle another planet. And centuries later, they send back a scout to see what's going on with, you know, maybe get some historical records or something. Uh, and the scout is covered with a composite um, technological and possibly also organic um, uh, coating called an emergency skin that resists radiation and stuff. Anyway, uh, the scout makes it onto the planet and finds that, in fact, um, it was not destroyed and there are still people living there. Uh, and they have, you know, they form, they all learned to live cooperatively and save the planet together. And the skin, which is also has an implant that is talking to the scout constantly, is saying, it keeps urging the scout to okay these people are crazy they're bad they're obviously inferior you Hmm. need to leave um and so um it's a really interesting story and a well-told story um you actually the whole story is the scout talking to sorry the skin talking to the scout you only hear the scout's thoughts by inference when Mm. the scout responds to questions or tells it stop looking at that yeah Mm. i suppose you would call that sunset beautiful but that's not (laughs) what the mission is about (laughs) Uh, so i'd recommend that story um 
That sounds really sounds, good. Where was that? Published? Sounds very simple compared to uh, this. It was published in something called the Forward Collection, ah. but you can buy it individually as a story. That's on Audible, Amazon, well. or whatever. Yeah. Oh, okay. Cool. 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 Yeah. Um, it looks like it's pretty short novel at length, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that sounds like a much simpler version of this. Um, obviously completely different, and you're right, an inversion. But, uh, you know, that sounds, uh, that'd be maybe a good N.K. Jemison place to start, because it's not a series thing, right? It is not. It's standalone, as far as I know. Yeah. Um, hmm. It's got positive reviews, too. Well, positive, ra- positive ratings. Uh, four right. Stars. Well, it won the Hugo, which, uh, for me, <laughs> is generally a recommendation. They're not always right. Uh, no, not always. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's a, yeah, it is like a, a note to, like, people are paying attention to the story. Mm. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, that sounds really good. Um, oh, I remembered the name of that Philip Jose Farmer story I described where the, like, the teens who had, like, sphinx bodies and were hermaphrodites, uh, <laughs> okay. go to stars, is called The Blasphemers. And it's Blasphemers. another one that's about religion. Mm. Interesting. Um, yeah, Phil was really neurotic about religion, um, and I mean, I don't think that's a secret. Uh, and it, it comes through in every single story that he writes, I think, is uh, he, he touches on that. Um, uh, you get to uh, the best part of the Riverworld books, I think, are the parts of them that are just uh, Philip Posey Farmer's uh, semi-autobiographical reflections huh. about uh, about things. And one of those is an extended... Um, uh, one about how, uh, you know, uh, his parents had this sense that he and his siblings should go to church, but they didn't like really care that much. Uh, and they certainly weren't going to go themselves. So they had them going to one church that was like pretty good, uh, for Phil, like emotionally and stuff. And then, uh, it became more convenient to send them to, uh, like a particular Presbyterian church, uh, near them. And that's like where like Phil's like lifelong battle hmm. uh, with the idea of predestination began, and like just like horrified by like a combination of the idea of predestination and the idea of hell, like he found that like personally traumatizing. I think like you know like millions of people actually find that to be like a traumatizing mm. uh, like mm-hmm. part of Calvin theology. Um. Uh. So uh, you know that like experience at a young age of just being exposed to like uh, religious ideas that he found like, you know, personally really hurtful um, uh, just comes up again and again and again in his stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's always like trying to find a, a way to relate to religion that like worked for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, there was a point in time where he almost became a Scientologist. Um, he, <laughs> No, I mean, uh, like, he had gone through all the meetings and they were like, OK, Phil, like the next step is you have to leave your wife. And he wow! Like, oh, yeah, and he and uh, you know uh, because she she wouldn't be a Scientologist, is that why? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so uh, they'll get her. Know, they'll he, get him a new wife, though. It's okay. Yeah. Well, he he threw them out of his house. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's that's nuts. Yeah, and and he got very interested in Sufi stuff. I think the the Riverworld books are actually, if you understand Sufism, there's like a way in which they're an extended metaphor for some <laughs> aspect of Sufism yeah. that uh, is lost on me. Um, uh, yeah, that's what that's what I'm saying is is actually is it's it's funny because you know anything I I'm doing in my semi I don't know podcasting life 
but it's all it's all related like i'll be i i try and make everything be interesting so if i'm tutoring a student i try and make it as interesting as possible for me because i think that makes it as interesting as possible for the student um sometimes it does you know you can't do that but generally i think that the, what he's doing is he's in he's writing stuff for sale but that's sort of only half of the reason he's writing it whereas a lot of people they write write because they want to make money <laughs> foolishly <laughs> back then it was a lot more possible uh, there was a lot more people who were doing it full-time um uh, well, I, I, I don't really even have the numbers today, but, um, <laughs> what I'm saying is he was always working on something, <laughs> right? Is that, uh, just looking through his biography, uh, or bibliography, I'm seeing things like, oh, this, this looks interesting. And yeah, you're working on your ideas. He's working on his, his philosophical ideas, even in this, right? So it isn't, it's ambivalent about religion completely, right? Yeah, it doesn't and that, say it's only attitude. this. He's not for or against. Yeah, he's Obsessed, he's for he's life. for and against certain things right now. Yeah. Um, and Philip K. Dick is very similar in that he he was fa- fascinated and always searching. Um, <laughs> makes friends with religious people and then <laughs> says, "Well, I don't think this guy's got it right, but he's very interesting in this respect. That's got me down this path." Um, so, uh, I don't, I don't know if that's uniquely American. I don't think it is, but I think it's specifically in, intensified in American, in American life of, you know, religions all over the world, but, uh, United States sort of the core to it is kind of religious, religious, religious Protestantism. um, yeah, religious, uh, freedom, right? Escape. And that sort of, fractalization of of churches is uh, is there another uh, like is there a country in Africa or Asia where I guess there are Asian ones yeah uh, now that I think about it there is there a country where they've got some weird religion that's starting up and it's it's like Scientology it's modern um what's the one out of China that's banned Falun, Again, Falun Gong right Gong? Falun Gong. Yeah, that sounds like, and, and it's out of there, right? It's operating out of New York now. So well, yeah. even they went to the United States to do their religious freedom. Well, they, uh, yeah, I mean, they get a lot of like financial backing from the United States and yeah, like, it's crazy. in China. So it's like natural for them to be in the United L- literal, States. Literal news propaganda newspaper arriving in my mailbox. It's crazy. <laughs> How is this happening? And that's because you live in a, an area in yes. British Columbia with a lot of Chinese people, right? Yeah, no, they're definitely, uh, there's definitely like, there's the arms of the Chinese government and then there's the, arm, the counter arm of the uh of the anti-chinese government and they're wrestling for the lower mainland here i don't know why but i guess we'll see what happens this has been the sff audio podcast please join us at www.sffaudio.com and thanks for listening If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash SFF audio.
Enterprise. I've been I've been suffering through the first two seasons of Enterprise. <laughs> just to, just to do it because I have never really I watched it sporadically when it first came out. But their Riza episode, it's like when humans first learn about Riza. I just thought it was hilarious because like I don't she, I don't like, get that far. I'm just going to practice my language and I, I learned Ryzen like in five minutes yesterday because she's like a genius in languages and I'm going to practice it. And she, you know, and then the guys are like, we're going to like find the Ryza chicks. We're gonna we're gonna have a good, you know. And then she ends up like finding like another linguist and so she ends up getting laid. <laughs> and then and then the men. The, they're like so forgettable in Enterprise. I don't even know. Oh their man, names. like the engineer and the <laughs> weapons guy. They are really. Like, they end up like yeah, scammed oh. by transsexual aliens who like rob them. <laughs> like they show up at the bars like these hot aliens. They're like, oh yeah, there's two of them. Good news. They're to like spend the night like chit chatting, and then they go back to the room and they like morph into men, rob them. Uh, I've got the a sp- same thing happens to Archer. The, Ar- the same thing happens to the captain. He basically gets scammed by a. It's not a gender swapper, but it's just a you know an <laughs> ale, another something to do with the overall plot of the story. But I'm sure that's one of the lowest ranked Enterprise episodes by the peep dorks who rank these things. Huh. I uh, thought it was pretty. Fun. I, I liked it. So uh, I'm going to read. I like the-, the sex in Enterprise. A lot of people seem to complain. I'm going to read uh, for those who missed out on the direct messages. Um, I was seven, sending to Evan, and Evan yeah. was sending to me. This was um, a couple of days ago. Uh, I'll just Okay. <laughs> uh, Jesse says, Was surprised to hear Miguel Barrett was not the voice of a computer in the first season. Um, and then Evan says, When you get into Deep Space Nine, keep your eyes on... Uh, keep your eyes open for Dax masturbating Ferengi ears every episode. <laughs> Keiko coming back evil and kind of hot. Kira sleeping with all of her old resistance buddies. <laughs> I'm like, wait a second. I don't remember that. And um, then... Uh, there is an episode like that. I bet it happens. Um, uh, Jesse sends a picture of the thing. He's taken over by the paw rates or something. I sent a picture. Uh, and I don't know what it is, but I said, rice a tiki thingy. On the Riker's Guide to Sex on the Final Frontier. So that's one of the potential names for this book. Riker's Guide to Sex on the Final pr- Frontier. What do you think uh, as a title? Nope. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, it sounds like a uh, sounds like a blog. How about uh, how about this Riker's Sex Horgan? That's the name of that uh, tiki thing from from. <laughs> From uh, Risa, shameless uh, Riker's sex horgan, shamelessly revealed. Uh, a commander's guide to Risa. Oh, <laughs> uh, and then oh, like chapter. You get into writing fan fiction. Pay, uh, uh, no, but I think I think there's so much. There's a lot more interesting stuff in DS9, like where Dax's ex, go ahead, like wife shows up. It's it's great, and they're like really hot for each other because they have all like the memories it's like uh, from like five generations five daxes back but it's like his direct ex wife it's a really wonderful episode because it's yeah, like a same at the time the, it was kind of like, oh the symbiont the same was sex. inside a, a man instead of a woman um but, but it has some interesting you know issues yeah uh, and then uh, they re kind of redo this <clears throat> Somebody needs to speak. 
Yeah, I'm kind of in and out. It's probably good as internet's not working. <laughs> but there's another. I mean, this comes back when Dax dies, or like Jadzia dies, and they bring Ezri, mm. and like because Worf and Jadzia were married, right? And wow. So like Ezri has all these memories of Worf's. They get on a couple times too, but yeah. I do not. It's like the the, 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 the trill stuff is kind of interesting in terms of sex. I don't remember it that well, but I, these but are yeah, all vaguely like whenever she needs something from Quark, she's like. She's like masturbating his ears, which is like it's essentially like masturbating. Something. Yeah, like, it's like petting a petting a dog, though, right? It's called. You, I mean, it's like a the fringy ears, like a sex. Yeah, yeah, but uh, that's all consensual. They're cool. Yeah, they're cool with she, it. She gets stuff yeah. from Quark all the. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I've been having trouble with my internet. I yeah. got uh, kicked off. Hmm. But I'm back now. You're still um, no, I, I not I'm close to your mic, though. I, I am. My internet's... Yeah. We have global internet problems. I don't know. China was messing with the internet earlier today, too, I think. Be a, it's going to be a war soon. Oh, oh, good. China's been really belligerent. <clears throat> Who are they going to mess up? Against Taiwan lately. Oh. Well, Biden will... Fi- I mean, Someone's Kamala will fix up. that. I can't so believe a, did a our provincial election came and went in like the course of. Thing is going to improve A provincial election came and went in the in between the two uh, elections. The uh, no, not elections. The two uh, non speeches or debates. It came and then it went. <laughs> it's done. I don't know. Uh, I so screwed up. Whatever. Um, and we narrowly avoided a, a federal election too. The liberals really wanted to wanted to try and strike while the iron was hot, but didn't work out. All right, um, we should uh, uh, reconvene with Evan. All right, I'm gonna next sign week. Yeah, sorry, I can't join you for yeah. I'm at the devil. Damn it! Good title. Uh, Why is this thing Kindle free? Is, is this how can this be public domain? Is it? Uh, uh, what the? I think he's not the, that the, old, the, is he? It's, it's just in the 50s. It's about copyright renewal. If, <laughs> if it didn't up to sixty three, if you didn't renew, then it it became public domain. Right. It was not right. automatic. You had to go through a process. Yeah, you have to send off your letter with a dollar or whatever. It was it was a better system, although it's not a good system. Either. All right. Anyway, I feel like we're getting into the oh, well. here. Yeah, it's a pity. I was all ready for Bellamy. I even rewatched Frederick Jameson. I had Frederick Jameson all ready to go. Dude, we're gonna do it next week. Maybe it is a curse of Bellamy. I want to hear about your your evil West Julian West as a villain. We will talk about it next week. I I haven't even read. Next week. I haven't even turned a page on this book yet. I'm all one, one book at a time. I don't know. If you didn't like Iron Heel, I'm not sure. Well, we'll see. A flashback to Iron Heel, maybe. I think it's better. I mean, it's it's similar thematically, but it doesn't so much Save better. it. Save it. Well, I'm just saying you should look forward I can't. I, I can't look forward to anything. I've still got Rastanak in my head here. In fact, I'm going to bring up the e-text because I don't even know what's going on. Rastanak. Bye, Evan. See you later, Evan.
Hi. All right, I'll watch. I'll listen to this episode for sure. Oh, good. <laughs> if you can send it to me. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I, I'm, I swear I did send it to you, but uh, I'll send it to you again right now. No, I mean the, the the podcast. Oh yeah, it'll yeah, it'll it'll be six months from now. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah. Bye. Next week. Bye. Yeah. Damn, that sucks. We gotta. I gotta do a better job of yelling at people. I, uh, I, I've been busy. I've been dog sitting and stuff. You've been How's bringing a puppy? dog back to life. Uh, 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 puppy is excellent, I think. But, um, <laughs> Willie, did you get your mic set up? Hello? Are we experiencing problems with it? It just sounds like it's across the room. Maybe it's uh, maybe I'm ja- maybe it is tap, picking up the wrong mic. Tap on uh, tap on the mic you think you're using. Did you hear that? Nope. No. That's why. Okay, so let me let me mess with my setting. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> um, yes, puppy is doing very well. Um, he's running around on the floor now, making little puddles. <laughs> <laughs> um, he's How about been, now? Oh, much no, better, much better. Okay, yeah, it was. Uh, it had the. It had the uh, mic and my webcam. Yeah, on. that's nah. it's it's sort of a perennial issue. Is is that sort of thing? Yeah, puppy is doing amazingly well for a puppy that almost almost died, and all siblings died, and mom died. But uh, it's uh, it's also nice to have a nice warm puppy, as opposed to a whole <laughs> bunch of cold puppies. I, I I do not recommend the cold puppy experience. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that sounds pretty dark. You know, uh, that's a that's warm the puppy, not a. <laughs> that's a, like the the worst haunted house ride, <laughs> the cold puppy experience. <laughs> that would be a dead puppy, right? Of course. <laughs> that's why they're cold. Cold. <laughs> it's 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 a it's a sad thing. I'm, I, I, my nose is clogged. I'm not crying. <laughs> It's okay if you are. I uh, no, I'm I'm literally not crying, but it did sound like I was crying. Um and now my laughing sounds like I'm crying. I've got a big smile on my face. Stress smile. Uh yeah, it could be. Well, I'm I'm just pissed off uh Evan isn't here for this uh this You got to fly to China and shake some sense into him. Well, we uh, we I should have been To be fair, you did tweet out several things about Bellamy this week. So. Yeah, it's cuz I did it at the same time. And uh mm-hmm. it's not like I wasn't talking to Evan on DMs. Uh but I was talking about Star Trek. <laughs> not um